Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Lawcast. This time, we're going back to cover the final battle between Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat. It's Wrestle War 89, the Music City Showdown. Kush, we're 40% of the way through 1989 Steve's version. How are you feeling? Do I still have you? Oh, absolutely you do. You know, you did apologize to me before the last one about how bad you thought that I would find it, and I very much enjoyed that show. This one is a much worse show and much more interesting even because a new booker's come into town and everything's just fucking different all of a sudden. Would it shock you if I said the readers of the Wrestling Observer regarded this as the greatest pay-per-view in wrestling history? The to greatest this to, the, okay. to this to this point. I'm trying to think about what would even be competition. WrestleMania for that. three is honestly like WrestleMania three is like the only W. I mean, the first Survivor Series was a good show, but like you think about WWF pay-per-views to this point have mostly been pretty bad. But like, here's the thing: is that like there is one truly magnificent match on this show, one pretty good match, and then I would argue. A bunch a lot, of shit that's not a good. A lot of stinky, stinky garbage. Like, I think that this Flair Steamboat here is comparable to Savage Steamboat. Don't come for me in the comments. Uh, and I think that Hogan Andre is better than anything else oh on this show. Oh, my God. And the so atmosphere of WrestleMania three shits on this show where they had, you know, a half-full Nashville Municipal Auditorium. And I think there's at least two Starcades before this that are probably better. But I understand if yeah. you're an Observer reader, you're the exact kind of fan who would be like, Flair Steamboat, greatest match of all time, best show of all time. Yeah, sure. So we'll have all that to get into. But first, we've got three current wrestling stories to talk about. Um, first off, WWE Crown Jewel, which I don't think you watched and I like half watched on mute, so I don't feel like we have a ton to say about this. But no huge developments. Reigns and Rollins both re- re- retained their respective world titles. It felt like LA Knight showed like he belonged in the main event. Logan Paul beat Rey Mysterio for the US title, and John Cena got absolutely destroyed by Solo Sokoa. The only three things about the show that are of interest to me is uh, the um, like how hard John Cena will work if he actually wants to put over the person that he's working with. Uh, if you compare this to what he did for Austin Theory at WrestleMania, it's clear that he thinks Solo Sokoa is just a little bit better than Austin Theory is. Yeah. Um, uh, Kyrie Sane made her re-debut here, which is a weird choice, but I'm glad she did it. I'm glad she's back. And then... Does it annoy you at all that, like, the grassroots campaign that made uh, L.A. Knight what he became? Like, a fan's just, like, constantly chanting his names in the arenas about the, them. It really felt like he's a guy that the fan base made from scratch into somebody who mattered. And then for him to finally get his title shot in fucking Saudi Arabia yeah. and not in front of those fans, it really feels like a slap in the face. It is. And yeah, I mean, just these last five years of WWE having so much of the most significant stuff in the company happen at these Saudi shows has really been kind of a bummer. They're getting paid 50 million per show. I, I, I yeah. academically, I understand it even while it turns my stomach, but like, 
If you get over to any extent but are not WrestleMania main event material, guess where you're headed, bub? To, to the main die, event of a Saudi, Saudi show. Arabia. Yeah. That's right. Um, so, yeah, you know, for WWE, quick turnaround to Survivor Series, which is, you know, barely two weeks away. It is funny to think if they do have CM Punk, it's weird to think that they wouldn't have brought him back here. Or does he have like a non like non working agreement until Survivor Series? I don't I don't know when. Yeah, I don't know when his non compete expires. Notably, he did. Tr- <laughs> Do you notice that every time he does one of these MMA comment commentating gigs, they clearly drop hints about where he's going next? Like, oh, of course. This time they said total nonstop action twice. That is very funny to me because and like his it's clear co-commentator had a WWE like scarf as a pocket square in his suit. I think it's so funny because I don't know if they're just like like ribbing him if or if like they have genuine information and they know that like this is going to get memed and get out because of course I would be like pretty sure that the most watched moment of all of those MMA shows he's yes. broadcast because they're not big shows is the moment where he talks about where he's going oh yeah that's that is my only exposure to whatever i don't even know what it is it's some small mma promotion that has their shows on ufc fight pass which of course is owned by endeavor which owns wwe now yep but you know it's just a holdover he's been doing this for years it's just funny I feel like TNA fans are genuinely, genuinely starting to work themselves into the idea like, yo, we're getting Punk and Osprey. Oh, my God. We're going to become like the number two promotion in America. Guys, take a breath. Yeah. Take a deep breath. I think they're getting used. If those people are both free agents by next April, then you might be able to convince me. But until then, nah. <laughs> Second story. Brian Danielson challenges Kazuchika Okada to a match at Wrestle Kingdom. Woo! He, is he going to wear the Undertaker skull mask to protect his broken orbital bone? It's actually funny because he's calling this an eye for an arm, and I fucking love that. Like It's like, you took my eye. I'm going to rip your fucking arm off. And I'm like... <laughs> he took his arm, too! My favorite thing about like when American guys do Japanese promos is that they're always like way harder than their American yeah. versions. Like Brian Danielson's just like walking through the desert, climbing mountains and shit, and he's just like, "Go, Kata, I'm gonna fucking kill you, man." I'm Jericho gonna track was you the down. same way. Jericho would just be like, "I'm gonna fucking murder you." Because it, it it just works differently there, but it brings so much out of people. We've already talked about the. Like, what happens to Omega when he goes to Japan and he suddenly becomes the most charismatic, dynamic force in the world after just being, like, kind of vaguely a dork in America? Yeah. So this is for Wrestle Kingdom, January. I I don't know if this will be the fourth or the fifth, but, you know, very beginning of the year. So they're projecting Danielson to be able to wrestle by then. Yep. Um, I love that that match is going to be on here. This is projecting to be a pretty stacked card so far. Uh, Sonata Naito on top. Uh, we came so close to getting Moxley versus his protege Shota Umino, but instead we're getting Will Ospreay versus John Moxley. Sounds great, and David Finley, unfortunately. Huh. Yeah. And so we're not getting another Osprey Omega match there. 
No. So I'm guessing that that may have been originally the plan, but he has a belt on him that they're planning on like relaunching as a brand new thing. Most of in New Japan's contracts expire yeah. immediately after Wrestle Kingdom. So he's got to lose the belt to somebody who's exactly. actually going to be around to defend it, yeah? They have a Nakamura AJ Styles problem all of a sudden. We're like, oh shit, well, we can't have him do anything important at the Dome. We just got to have him like take a loss. It'll be interesting to see what Omega does then. It's interesting. Like, Hopefully he's involved in some way. He could do just a, a trios thing with the Bucks. I don't know, but it just it would feel wrong... Like, every year that goes by that Omega doesn't do something cool in Japan is a year of his prime wasted, you know? Like, just get him involved in something. Yeah. And third, a topic I regret to talk about, how awesome Logan Paul is. I regret to inform you that, once again, Logan Paul is a shockingly good professional wrestler. Logan Paul... He really fault, helps that he follows like the Shane McMahon formula. Like if you only have a match every six months and you can prepare for it and like you can heal up after the ass kicking that you're going to take, a lot of guys could probably look better. But even by that standard, we can't hold this against him anymore. He's obviously very good at what he does. Yeah, I if he were willing to work a full time schedule or anything even remotely resembling it, I'd say put one of the world titles on him. I mean... He fucking saved Rey Mysterio's life. Yeah. Yeah, that he was a like, move way beyond his years that he caught Mysterio out of the air on that moonsault. It's actually funny because the two most obvious, like, clear vision times we've seen a luchador get saved by a random person, it's like two of the most inexperienced shitty wrestlers that you would think about. Like, Ryback saving Kalisto is the other one. It's just like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, how how far can he go? I mean, I'm interested to see what they do with him at WrestleMania. I, a rematch with Seth Rollins. Uh, we fought Rollins last year. A rematch this year for the world title wouldn't feel out of line. Look, the president has been set that you can win a world title and then just be gone for six months and then defend it. Like, there's yeah. no – now that there are two. Especially, the especially if Cody's going to get the other one. And yeah, and Cody's found out. I'll only be defending it on every fucking house show in Saginaw, Michigan, across the whole fucking country. So why not? I don't think it would be out of the question at all for Logan Paul to win a world title. Probably not the world title, but definitely the other one. I kind of think he would have been perfect with money in the bank. Yeah. Just like, when is he going to cash it in? Every time he shows up is an yeah. event. You'd think every time, he, yeah, anytime he showed up, you'd expect him to. And the heat on that man for holding that belt. Yeah. Like, there's not a lot of purity left in WWE titles, but, like, there's still some people that you would be like, he can't have it. Not oh, him. Him as the WWE champion, the title held by Bruno San Martino, Bob Backlund, Hulk Hogan, Steve Austin, John Cena, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels. Logan Paul being the WWE champion would be heat. And, and like your heart says it's a David Arquette situation, but then you have to acknowledge to yourself that actually Logan Paul's really fucking good. Imagine how so good like, those matches would be, how much heat they'd have. Just to like every single babyface that almost got the belt off of Logan Paul, like the like it would be everyone would be so there for him to finally get beaten. Yeah. I'm interested to see who he ends up working with at WrestleMania. I can't, nobody jumps out at me off the top of my head. 
That's a good point. I don't really CM know. Punk. Um, well, now that's interesting. CM Punk versus Logan Paul might actually be the perfect use of CM Punk. That actually, again, like the wrestler's wrestler against the world's biggest douchebag. And just like the shit talking they can do back and forth. Yeah. <sighs> kind of love that. Yeah. All right. So with that behind us, let's get into the show. Um, Wrestle War 89, the Music City Showdown. Um, we're coming off Chi Town Rumble, where Ricky Steamboat beat Ric Flair to win the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Um, that was February 20th. After that, they had about a six week runway to build to what I would say was their biggest show of the year, the April 2nd Clash of the Champions from New Orleans, which they were going to run at the Superdome head to head with WrestleMania 5. Like, this was their biggest show of the year, not Starcade. I think that's without any question. Um, it's funny that this is their biggest show of the year. And you can tell that they've like pulled out all the stops. Like every big star that they can get on this show, they're like imported some stars that they don't normally have. Like they're putting every, there's a big debut on this show. Like they're going for it on this one. And it's like a weird vibe for a show. Like that's basically in the middle of the year. Yeah. But Turner, there was this whole backstory with, I think Turner thought he had outmaneuvered Vince and he was going to get to run a pay-per-view the day of WrestleMania and maybe fuck Vince over and force some systems not to carry WrestleMania. But then I think it turned out he was getting used by the pay-per-view companies. But Turner really wanted to go head-to-head with Vince for the second year in a row here. I'm sure that he did. Let's be clear. If you're the pay-per-view companies, like, let's ignore the fact that WCW's never drawn shit really on pay-per-view. Uh, the last WrestleMania that just happened is WrestleMania 5? No, this is like, WrestleMania 5. This is the right, one right. that does the, like, 8 by yeah. right? Like, until, like, 17, this is, like, the best-selling yeah. pay-per-view of all time. Like, you're not going to get pay-per-view providers to say no to this. No, but for WCW, I think it makes all the sense in the world to run a free TV special the same day. Like, people are going to be in the mood to watch wrestling. Some people will watch both. For some people, they'll be like, oh, I don't want to buy WrestleMania. Let's just watch the free show instead. I mean, that's understandable. Unfortunately, everything goes wrong. The TV coming out of Chi-Town Rumble is incredibly flat. Nothing but squash matches and dull promos. They don't do any angles. There's no ongoing stories. There is nothing to keep people watching. The ratings fall below a 3.0 for the first time ever. Woof. Yeah. Also, a big fundamentals issue. They They didn't promote the house shows which is supposed to be, you know, their big business. What you hear all George Scott cared about was the house shows. They weren't using their TV to promote the house shows. They didn't have localized promos, which is insane. That's the whole point of TV in this era is to be a commercial for the house shows. I I can't honestly follow any sort of business model because we've always heard the idea that like George Scott is only pushing the house shows and blah, blah, blah. But like you said, that's not what's happening. 
unless he's just assuming that putting big matches on the house shows will just get people to come to them, which isn't even how it used to work in the territories. No, and even then, how do they know what the matches on the house shows yeah. are? You have to promote them. And I don't I mean, think they had great ground game, especially since they were running in a lot of cities they weren't used to running. I'm sure they had good promotion in you know, Greensboro and Raleigh and Charleston and the cities that they used to run in Crockett or the cities in Georgia. But when they run it up in Chicago or out in LA, I don't think they have any kind of local promotion, any kind of street team out there. And I don't know what kind of budgets they had for local ads to promote the shows. It's funny. We've never really talked about street teams before, but back in the territory days, that's literally how Huge. word got out. Like there was no TV unless there was like maybe a little bit of super local TV. You would literally just get your people to go wallpaper posters at the yeah. YMCA or community centers hand or them, wherever. Hand them out outside bars, you know, hand them out outside concerts. Like they do like a phone call campaign. Like literally like my uh, stepdad used to tell me about like he would get calls and be like, hey, you live in Norfolk. Did you know that so-and-so is coming to the Hampton Coliseum? Yeah. Yeah, if you're on the list because you bought tickets before, I'm sure they come and like mailing, like there's a whole to do this well, promoting wrestling, it's a lot of work to pull it off. Yeah. It's easier today with social media, but honestly, when we're seeing AEW have last minute success these days, a lot of times it's because they do the old school stuff. Like they get guys on radio and local TV shows and start pushing the show out. Yeah, WWE these days just knows they're going to get eyeballs regardless, so they don't really have to try this to the same extent. But this stuff still works. Like getting direct, appealing directly to your consumer does work. It's just so hard. Yeah, I mean, local, like local radio is old school, but a lot of people still listen to it, and wrestling's audience is on the older side. Yeah, stunningly, a lot of people do still listen to it. <laughs> I mean, the other thing with the TV is they weren't. It wasn't like, you know, back in the day on WWF TV, they'd shoot an angle between, you know, Hogan and Earthquake on TV, and then they would take that match all around the loop. None of that here on these shows. They're really not showcasing any feuds at all. Nope. And the Looking at the house show cards, they don't really relate to anything that's happening. It's kind of just like, it's not Steamboat Flair on most of these house shows. It's, Steam, it's Flair Luger, which is a stale match at this point. Yep. I mean, I'm sure that's fine for the people on house shows, but like, yeah, it's no question why the business is suffering. What they're focusing on is they're doing a bad job of focusing on it. And you can't even really prove that that's what they cared about. They're not really focusing on anything. And for some insane reason, they ran a house show in New Orleans on March 8th, only a few weeks before the clash. And they drew a $15,000 gate. That should have been alarm bells. $15,000. You and I could draw a $15,000 game. <laughs> so, of course, they booked the Superdome for the Clash of the Champions. No idea who had this genius idea. Like, this is a territory where they're struggling to draw 5,000 people pretty much anywhere. And they're going to run New Orleans, which has dried up as a wrestling town. Like it's not JYD back in 1980 anymore. Crockett has not been able to draw in new Orleans since they bought the UWF. It's, it's depressing to see territories die like this, like new Orleans and Dallas, I think die as hard as really any territories do during this period. So 
you've always heard they didn't promote Flair versus Steamboat. Having watched the TV, 100% true. They literally didn't say Flair versus Steam that Flair and Steamboat were wrestling at the Clash until the Saturday night, the night before Clash of the Champions. Literally before that, they never once said it would be Steamboat versus Flair at the Clash. They didn't promote any matches that were going to happen. And to be clear, that's not a hot feud anyway. It's not like it was going to sell the place out if they had told them. But, like, give them a chance to buy tickets. Fuck. Yeah, I mean, you can at least, if you're going to go for this, I think you've got to put over Steamboat and Flair had the greatest match anybody's ever seen in Chicago. And now they're going to have a two out of three falls match on free TV. You've got to watch it. Yep. But... Of course, George Scott is an old school booker and he doesn't like that they're doing their big match on free TV. He's worried it's going to kill the pay-per-view. It's going to kill the house shows. I mean, this is just, and Jim Hurd is asleep at the wheel and I think wasn't watching the TV and didn't know they weren't promoting it. So about two weeks before the clash, I think Hurd got a report on how many tickets they had sold for the Superdome. And I assume he was expecting it was going to be like 20,000, and instead it was like 500. Like, just imagine. I mean, the embarrassment, but also, like, as Jim Hurd, you fucked up. Like, you haven't been on top of this. You should have been getting daily reports on how the ticket sales for this show were going. How often do you think, when it's WrestleMania, how often do you think Vince McMahon, back in the day, was getting reports on the ticket sales? I oh, have to imagine day. every week, if not every single day. I bet when they were running the Alamo Dome for that Royal Rumble, I bet he was getting a daily report on how many tickets they moved the previous day. Well, yeah, especially since he did what only half believed that Bruce was like actually going to get the a walk up, up to come yeah. to that. <laughs> So he's just like, what is it? What is it? What is it? But it's but it's also like one person's whole job is just to find out what the advanced ticket sales are to events. Like, I'm sure WCW had one of those people, too. Like, what's that guy doing? Yeah, I mean, in, again, you're Jim Hurd. You're in charge of this company and you don't watch the TV show? Like you well, have, was, you don't know that they haven't been promoting the match on TV? Like, JR says Hurd called him angry, being like, why haven't we been promoting the match? And JR was just like, because George Scott told me not to. I assumed you would talk to him about that. And see, this is why Jim Hurd eventually does become involved in the booking. Yeah. I don't think he originally wanted to. But I think like, this is I think this is a critical moment for him. I think like here he's like, I've got like after this, I think he's like, I can't trust anybody. Like these guys are such fuck ups. By the way, that keeps happening across the course of WCW history. There is never a cohesive connection between the executive producer yeah. and the person doing the booking, except for like basically 1996. And that's it. I mean, it feels like even when Bischoff was running things, it always felt like there would be some weird miscommunications. Or he would feel the need to like put his hands on it instead of just trusting Sullivan. I, I honestly can't think of an example of like a master promoter like trusting a booker to do the booking on their own ever. I really can't. Except maybe now with Triple H and WWE. Because only because Vince has been forcibly removed from the situation. Right. But also he is 
a booker basically that's just what his job is now. Yeah. He's doing a fucking good to, job. He doesn't have to do he's got Nick Khan to do all the business stuff. There's such a massive company now that yeah, all he has to worry about is creative, which is great. That's what he wants to do. It's what he's good at. But how fascinating would it be if he like had another heart attack and had to leave and suddenly Nick Khan is like, Do I get involved in creative? Yeah. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> So the Friday before the clash, they did a special on TBS with former NWA champions, uh, Buddy Rogers, Pat O'Connor, Luthez, Gene Kaniski, Terry Funk, Harley Race, Dory Funk, talking about the history of the NWA championship and, you know, Flair versus Steamboat continuing the great tradition of the world title. I love this. This is such a cool idea. I always think that big matches should have something along these yeah. lines. And we talked about it a bunch of times. Like, it doesn't always have to be about the belt specifically. I just love the idea of, like, get some old legends who are great at talking around and just let them fucking chat about, like, what this match means. Even when it was, like, John Cena versus Bobby Lashley at the Great American Bash, just seeing Mick Foley and Steve Austin be like, well, I think Bobby Lashley's a hell of a fucking talent. I don't know. I can't call this one. Add so much. Yeah, there's so many, and there's so many different ways you can do this. Like here, it was all the former champions. Like remember the, I think it was Bad Blood in St. Louis where they brought out all the St. Louis wrestling yes. legends. I love that kind of stuff. You know, I love the Night of Champions where they, for each match, they would bring out. You know, here are the great former Intercontinental champions. Here are the great former tag team champions. And it's just such a great, like, you kick a grand to each one of these guys, yeah. and like maybe yeah, one of them here they got a nice steak dinner. Maybe one of them's in pretty good shape and he can do a little bit of an angle with a heel and get that heel a little bit over. Like these guys have skills that don't just go away when they get old. And like mostly legends in this business are treated like fucking garbage unless they're working the convention circuit. And these these guys in particular, there's just something. These guys are statesmen. We talk about like Fez and O'Connor and Kaniski. Like these are the guys who built pro wrestling. Like in the case of Fez, it's like these are the guys who like transitioned wrestling from shoot to work. And literally, like the word venerable was invented for guys like Luthez. Like he accomplished everything. He built this the the modern business on his back. He knows it. When you see him, like you feel that aura yeah. of a guy who built this business. Uh, they brought Mushnick in for this too, and like Mushnick might as well be like the for- <laughs> like uh-huh. former president of the NWA, but might as well be the former president of the United States in this context. It's so funny. Like I don't know that there are very many people who are like more respected that, from that era that like more most. people from now don't even know who the fuck they are. <laughs> Like even Vince McMahon, like Vince McMahon Senior, obviously thought the world of Mushnick. But like I think even Vince McMahon Junior was deferential to Mushnick and like would never have disrespected him. No, Junior went to that NWA board meeting and bent the knee to Mushnick and said, "I'm leaving the NWA. I'm sorry." Only because it was Mushnick, he would have ghosted anyone else. Yeah, rather than just sending a letter like he would have for somebody else. Yeah. All right, so this show is one of the biggest debacles in pro wrestling. Yeah! They drew (laughs) about 5,000 people in the 70,000-seat stadium. (sighs) $1,300 paid for another $15,000 gate. Absolute money. Absolute money loser. And it's not... 
it's one thing to only draw $15,000 at your normal arenas, yeah. but to like go into a fucking stadium, cordoned off though it may be, and like the side ancillary part though it may be, so to say you're running the Superdome and you made 15 grand is a fucking embarrassment. I mean, literally, when you're, it's so dark in there, all you see is like 10 rows of people in the bleachers they set up. They might as well be in a high school gym. Flair and Steamboat go into this embarrassing humiliating scenario and produce art <laughs> yeah i mean jr said this was like as bad as he'd ever felt like calling a show like he so he could not ever remember not wanting to be somewhere more than when he walked into the superdome and saw how few people there were it's just one of those things where like you can convince yourself if you're like in the on the front line so like hey man this company's still doing good it's still the number two in the world like we're doing great it's, but it's stuff like that that's just like, oh, I might be on the losing team. Do I need to start looking for a job? I mean, 5,000 5, people in the normal arena, whatever it is in New Orleans at the time, would have been fine. Like, it wouldn't have been great, but it would have at least been okay. 5,000 people in the Superdome. You can't even hear them. It's so quiet. But I want to put this in context for, like, fans, like, maybe younger fans. I don't know how many of those that actually are that listen to our podcast. But, like, five years before this, they were selling out everywhere with liquid hot crowds. Five years. I mean, uh, these I days, think, nothing changes in five years. What did JYD get? They got up to, like, 30,000 people in the Dome for, I think, JYD's big run. Yeah. But I'm just talking about, like, the NWA in general. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, like. Yeah, they They're on 15, top of the world. If they put 15,000 people in Greensboro, we put, you know, 15,000 people in the Omni. Yeah, five years ago now, like what, aside from like AEW's entire existence, like WWE doesn't even detect a blip in five years. <laughs> yeah, but the business is a lot more volatile back then. I mean, yeah. even he, here, they've cooled off a ton even from the previous year, I feel like. Even from the previous show, I think. Like, it just... The, this crowd is not remotely as interested in this show as the one that we just covered. Uh, the other thing is the TV rating came in at a 4.3, which was the lowest clash to date. They had done a 5.8 the previous year. That's a huge drop. But I can't even blame the fans because, yeah. like, if you had tuned in and looked at that, it was just dark and sad it looked like absolute shit and most people didn't know if you missed saturday night the night before you didn't know it was flair versus steamboat Woof. and it's i mean it's in a it's in a different times i guess the previous year they had done sunday against wrestlemania but usually the clashes were like prime time on like a wednesday night so it was right. in a different time, but also just I don't think they had the same level of interest. They've cooled off a lot since then. And Flair versus Steamboat, not as hot as – and the the previous year it was the first clash, so that was a really big deal that you were going to get this really big show on free TV. Yep. Okay, so of course in the main event, Steamboat beat Flair in the two out of three falls match. They went about 55 minutes. Flair won the first fall when he reversed a small package and got the pin. Steamboat won the second fall with a submission on an elevated double chicken wing. And then Steamboat won the third fall when he got Flair up for the chicken wing. His knee gave out and he bridged into a pin. Um, 
course, this was a great match. It was a little long for my taste. I think, as always, probably would have been better served just being a one fall match and going 55 minutes. In the in the era of like post 1930, I don't see the point for two out of three falls matches. The post the territory era where you literally had to let the other guy get a pin. Yeah. Or otherwise you, you were burying it. him. Yeah. yeah. Like, but now in this modern era, two out of three falls just doesn't need to happen. Yeah, I just all to me, two out of three falls just means wake me up when we get to the third fall. Absolutely, it's so funny how many wrestling stipulations are like that. Like, <laughs> so, you've covered that so often. Okay. Isn't like here's what it comes down to: isn't what makes wrestling great, what makes boxing, MMA great, that that, that it's sudden death and it can end yes. any time, and you don't know when it's going to end, and this strips that out. Absolutely. Yeah. Like it, it, the idea that it's just like, oh yeah, like this is going to be a great match. You're cool with just watching a, a vanilla great match that doesn't matter until the end, right? No, no, I'm not. Fuck off. Uh, Flair got his foot under the ropes during the pin. So as a result, he gets one more shot here at Russell War. I have to assume everyone thought they were going to the time limit once they got over 45 minutes. Oh yeah. Um. So in the aftermath of this disaster, I think George Scott was fired even before the clash. I think he got fired when Heard got the report on how many tickets had been sold and he found out they hadn't been promoting the show on TV. I think he just shit canned Scott right there, which I don't know if he's right to do. I mean, on some level, of course, you should be promoting this TV special, but I don't know. Had a, the herd is very culpable here for bad communication and for not being on top of this. If I was Ted Turner, I would have had Jim Hurd in my office like the next day having a very serious talk about like what our company's objectives are. Yeah. You can't just say like, well, he was supposed to take care of it. Well, you're the one who's supposed to be managing him. Yeah. Like, what are we you... paying you to do exactly then? Right. <laughs> Enlighten me. What is your role in this company if it's not to oversee the booker? Exactly. So Scott is replaced by a booking committee that includes Flair, Jim Barnett, Jim Ross, Eddie Gilbert, and Kevin Sullivan. I feel like Flair is usually referred to as the head of this committee. I don't know if he's actually the head of it. I think Hurd is really the head of it. Flair, to me, makes total sense as the figurehead. Like, I don't think Flair's actually a booker, but I think having having people say Flair is the one booking makes sense because I think people are going to be more willing to do what you ask of them if they think it's Ric Flair asking. Absolutely. And and it makes sense as like a, a little thing to give Ric Flair as like a, a yeah. feather in his cap to be like, oh, yeah, I'm the head booker. So that's like, very I mean, it's very typical in the territory days that the top star would also be the booker like Dusty, Bill Watts, Eddie Graham. It's common, obviously, in Japan, Inoki and Baba, because that's the guy, you know, isn't leaving because yeah, <laughs> he's got a, a personal stake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, a pretty good group of wrestling minds there, I'd have to say. It is interesting because I, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with this team. 
Um, it, it remains we don't know who the fuck actually has power on this team or who's really making the I final think decisions. Su- Sullivan seems like the guy who's gonna have the Sullivan seems like the guy who's gonna have the most ideas here. Maybe, and I don't know Eddie Gilbert that well, but I feel like he was involved in booking a few places, so he might be a good booker too. But like Sullivan and Barnett both feel like movers and shakers here. The real question is, and that's probably the problem here, is somebody at the end of the at the end of the day has to be able to make the final decision so that there's a cohesive identity yeah. for your program. Who the fuck is it in this group? I don't well, I think, think it's actually knew. I think it's actually Jim Hurd who and Jim Hurd has the final call. But that's a horrible thing because yes. he does not know what the fuck he's doing. No. I mean it's it's just like Heard is the guy in charge. He does need to sign off on the book in. And like, I think there's a role for him to say, like, is an outsider kind of look at and be like, I don't know if this makes sense. Or like, this seems weird to me, but yeah, like, I just don't think he has the experience to actually be booking. No. And like that, that's not anything against him. Like he was thrust into this role. He had some experience in wrestling, but not really on this level. Certainly not with like actually Sam Muchnick wasn't letting him see the run sheets no. and shit. No, I, he was not involved in the booking in St. Louis. He was the director. No one was other than Sam Muchnick. Yeah. The first TV show of the new regime was the April 15th episode of World Championship Wrestling, and the improvement was pretty much immediate. First, they'd moved the tapings out of the like dingy little WTBS studio to the Center Stage Theater in Atlanta, which holds more like 700 people. And with the acoustics in there, it sounds like 10,000 people when they start cheering. Like, I think this Center Stage is a perfect venue for wrestling. This is what I'm sure Jim Hurd can be credited with. Because basically what he does is he turns it into the St. Louis wrestling show. It's just like, hey, let's put it on a soundstage, just like Center Stage always was. And like, people will respect that easy to shoot there and it's just it makes sense and like if that's that was his only contribution he did a good job yeah in the old wtv like i thought the studio they were in before looked like shit because there was like a hundred people there there's like four rows of people around the ring it looks awful it looks so small time whereas here 700 people is not a huge crowd but you can fill this every single week and it sounds good and it looks good on tv and that's it's a winning good. that's a winning formula for wrestling for me. People make fun of the impact zone and the Disney tapings and this, and I'm like, this is just if you can't draw big crowds, this is just fine. Like this is honestly kind of what I think Collision should be doing at this point. I think maybe they should just start running the Jacksonville Amphitheater. Yeah, the only problem with like your impact zones is that like Dixie Carter didn't have any actual plan to get them out of that eventually. She was perfectly content to stay there forever. And then yeah. your product will stagnate if you do that. And I but don't I think you need to be able to tour, but like for just your weekly TV show, I think yeah. like yeah, I think this is just fine. Absolutely. Uh, The show became much more interesting and fast-paced. They were building issues. They were building conflict. Uh, The main event was Ricky Steamboat versus Ron Simmons, which is a really interesting matchup. And the show ended with a brawl between Michael Hayes and Lex Luger, which I think is – you can't go off the air with a brawl every week, but uh, I'd say probably every other week you should be going off the air with, you know, it's breaking down in Tulsa, we're out of time. There's a reason why that's so iconic. Um, 
I, I'm trying to think, like, TNA really did this to death, where they literally had, like, a brawl in the show, like, every single week for, like, two years straight. Like, you, you can't know, do that. <laughs> I mean, not every week, but more weeks than not. I think the show should, I think there's, I just always think you should end with something. There's other things you can end with. You can end with, like, an ominous shot of like the heel backstage watching the baby face or like something intriguing. There should be a hook rather than I just hate when wrestling goes off the air and it's just like the baby face celebrating that he won his match. Like I think that's just kind of a flat way to end a show. Yeah. Unless you have Hulk Hogan, your baby face does not need to pose at the conclusion of the show. Yeah. Plot hooks make good TV. That is to his credit, the thing that Vince Russo understood above all else is that plot hooks are what get people to come back. That's why high-rated TV always, always does that. All right. Before we get to the show, shall we partake in the lightning round? Oh, I would be delighted, sir. A house show in Raleigh drew only 800 people. Really Fuck. hard times when they can't draw in Raleigh. Oh, that's some Dusty Rhodes hard times, baby. <laughs> Even worse, a house show in Dayton, Ohio, only drew 200 people in a 13,000-seat building. Guys, a TNA house show I went to in Bowling Green, Ohio, outdrew that. <laughs> yeah, like, and this... Company was on, I mean, had was on national TV, had all kinds of big stars, although, to be fair, so did TNA. Yeah, that's true. Vince Young was fired for refusing to lose to Bob Orton. Nobody missed him. Uh, I forgot what the fuck Vince Young you were talking about, and I was like, the, the quarterback? <laughs> the quarterback <What>? Texas, <laughs> yeah. Had a career in the NWA back in the 80s before he played quarterback for the Horns. He probably would have had a career afterwards. Definitely been, for Fritz. Could have been a good wrestler. I'm surprised he never showed up in TNA since he played for the Titans. Was he not one of the guys who beat up Jeff Jarrett that one time? No, that was all like the linemen. Only linemen ever show up to wrestling events. Steve Williams kept complaining in his promos that it was too hot in the studio. I don't know what this was about. I hope that that was just a choice, but I think it's almost funnier if it's not. If he was just like, God damn it. If it was like the Lex Luger thing where the shirts are too tight. <laughs> the t-shirts are too tight. <laughs> Dennis Guthrie, Ric Flair's actual attorney from Charlotte. Yes, I Googled him. Appeared on TV to argue that Flair deserved a rematch because his foot was on the ropes at the clash. I love, I am del- I love that they got the actual lawyer. I'm delighted that, like, Ric Flair probably had this guy so on retainer that he was just like, look, he's going to be here anyway. <laughs> I'm sure Rick him? gave this guy plenty to wor- of work. Oh, yes. <laughs> this guy was a named partner at one of the biggest law firms in Charlotte. God. <laughs> oh, a glittering sign that was part of the set for the Clash of the Champions misspelled Flair's name as having a K in it. Rick Flair, R-I-C-K. Jesus Christ. Like, I the can understand. attention to detail here. I can understand fucking up everyone on this show but Rick Flair. But, like, he's the only guy everyone knows. Sting beat Mike Rotunda for the TV title, but the match was so bad they wrestled again the next night and showed that match on TV instead. 
Jesus Christ, that must have been a really bad match. It's funny because the one they aired on TV was very good. So I'm cu- I'd be curious to hear what was so wrong with the other one. I mean, Rotunda was a solid worker, and like I thought Sting was good by this point too. So maybe they just had a problem. Maybe they didn't like that Sting didn't work strong enough in the match or something like that. Maybe. Maybe Rotunda just took too much of the match, and they were like, um, we're trying to kind of push Sting here. Can you fuck off? The Midnight Express and Jim Cornette departed after a contract dispute. They'll be back soon. Ah, yes, they will. A Wrestling Observer poll found 90% of their respondents enjoyed Clash of the Champions more than WrestleMania. Now, I do want to point out that all Observer polls, including today, usually have about 100 people responding to them. Sure, and like... The people like the people who subscribe to the Wrestling Observer are not indicative of the broader wrestling audience, especially back then. Yeah. Uh, imagine how diehard you had to be at the time to read your Wrestling Observer that was sent in, via mail to your house. He puts a like a survey in there. You have to mail it back to him. Yeah. You want to know something wild? Just uh. this week he announced he's discontinuing the hard like the hard copy version of the observer there's still some people who get it mailed to them he's still really yeah he's just now discontinuing after so like i had assumed this thing had been all digital for like 20 years at this point but now there's he's still been doing the hard copy he's finally going to discontinue it well the funny thing is he still does it all on his fucking typewriter anyway whether he mails it to you or not (laughs) I do want to shout out the uh, I bought the Wrestling Observer 1989 um, book collections for this. It's two volumes. Outstanding. Like these both. This is a really interesting year. These 89 issues are not digitized yet, so they're not up on the website. And there's just something about reading, reading it in a book that makes it much more interesting, I find. And it's, it's also like readable in book form than it is the like even to, I mean, the digitized versions of the old newsletters are really tough to read. There's just, even to this day, Meltzer, no space in, no punctuation, run on sentences. But say what you will about Meltzer, like and the Observer as a thing. What you can't take away from it is that it's such a great slice of life. Look Time at how capsule. people felt at yeah. the time. Yeah. Like there's really no other way to get that sort of thing. Yeah. The NBA announcers on TBS reportedly refused to promote the Clash of the Champions replay, saying a wrestling card was beneath their dignity. Fuck off, Marv Albert or whoever this is. Actually, I think Marv Albert. I think Marv Albert's a wrestling fan, actually. Some real Bob Costas shit on this one. (laughs) Bob Costas was a wrestling fan, too. Yes, right up until the... Uh, Dennis Rodman, Carl Malone thing. We're like, they're going to do one of their fake wrestling matches. <laughs> and finally, the hammer. A new Japan show at the Egg Dome drew reported attendance of over 50,000 people and a gate of 2.7 million American dollars. The card featured several Soviet amateur wrestlers, including Victor Zangiev. Anoki had a fucking yeah. idea, baby. His idea, his dream, was that he was going to go to every country in the world, find their biggest badass fighters, bring them to New Japan, and then beat them himself. (laughs) 
Inoki actually did a job on this show because a guy yes. refused to lose to him. And it sounds like it was a brilliant match. Genuinely, like, the, there was a, a whole renaissance, and I could talk about this for five hours, of, like, MMA becoming part of the public consciousness during this period. Yeah. Like, the, the beginning forerunners of MMA. This is, when the like, U- this is when the UWF is getting going. Exactly. And, like, the most credible man in all of Japan for that was Inoki himself, who was the man who blended sports, like, entertainment and and real fighting together. Yeah. And, like, I don't know. What is something about having – I think it's like having the Soviets compete outside of the Soviet Union was so rare. It was a huge attraction. And it just he it feels like an Olympic event, doesn't it? Yeah, like it, like literally, this is one of the first times Soviets had ever done professional sports because previously, like the Soviet hockey team would tour, they would play games in the United States, but like not a professional event. Like you didn't have right. so like Russians were not before this allowed to just go out and play, you know, in the NHL. That doesn't happen until into the 90s. But here, the Cold War is ended. Like, literally, uh, the Berlin Wall falls a few weeks before this show. That was April. Just a genius stroke by Anoki, a man who could sell himself. There's nobody in the world he couldn't get on the phone with. Like, doesn't yeah. matter if it's the Soviets or Saddam Hussein or fucking Pol Pot. Probably, There's no he probably, one. Yeah, he probably just called up Gorbachev. Yeah. Like, literally, if it was today, like, Enoki could get on the phone with Vladimir Putin right now and have, like, a reasonable conversation. Yeah, Yeah, literally, he'd just be like, yo, you guys want to promote a big-ass wrestling show on the border? And they would all – somehow they would all say yes. Yeah, and this would be – this was Enoki's madcap vision for how he was going to become prime minister of Japan through wrestling diplomacy. And it almost worked. It almost worked. If he hadn't got caught up in corruption scandals, it might have. Like he literally saw circa the early nineties, Japan goes into a really bad recession and they would be desperate for new political leadership. And like, you can argue that like he was the man who was on the front lines of like stopping some of like the world's worst horrific leaders during the late eighties, early nineties. He did. He was a global ambassador for Japan. He got hostages out of Iraq during the Gulf War. He He negotiated with um, Kim Jong-un or uh, whichever one it was back then. I can't think of the guy's name, but the leader of North Korea before the current one. It's actually funny because that one didn't do him a lot of political favors because everyone in Japan thought he was fucking insane to have done it in the first place. I mean, he was, but yeah, it was a noble effort. Now it wasn't. It was a cynical effort to advance his political career, and he probably got some money out of it, too. Oh, yeah. But guys, <sighs> the guy who was mo- modeled for Zangief in Street Fighter was at that show wrestling people, yeah, just like he was at a WCW show. Remember how much we marked out for that star cave where it was uh, Zangiev and Hashmikov were the two Russians, yep. I think, in the tag oh, team yeah. tournament? Dude, I marked – those guys kicked ass. I need to look up – I think Zangiev did some UFI or some UWF. I need to watch some of those fights. Yeah, just understand that the Japanese version of those guys, they were allowed to actually do stuff because in WCW they were told, like, all right, don't hurt anybody. And they were like, I guess I'll just – 
play pretend? I don't know. <laughs> in Japan, not as much of a consideration. In Japan, now, we're just like, doing judo oh, on fuckers. Yeah, it's gonna, we're going to put this young boy out there. We want you to hurt him. He needs to learn a lesson. Stretch this motherfucker. <laughs> we're going to teach him a lesson about respect tonight. <laughs> All right, so to get into the show, it's Sunday, May the 7th, 1989. We are at the Nashville Municipal Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, they draw 5,200 people. That's half full. The capacity's more like 10,000. Gate of only $35,000. So $7 per ticket. They didn't sell all those tickets. But, you know, with the freebies, the average is $7 per ticket. Here's what I will give them. There are a lot of women at this show. They have not yet lost the women audience. When a wrestling promotion loses the women, that's when it's going down. <laughs> I'm sure the boys were uh, hitting the bars real hard after this. That's true. Uh, they do a 1.3 buy rate for 120,000 buys. Internally, they were reportedly hoping for a two, but I don't think that was realistic. No. I'm sure they were hoping for it, but there's no fucking way. Uh, it's basically the same as Chi-Town Rumble did 130, so no meaningful change. God, that's just so pathetic. That's just kind of what their audience was at this point. Um, like, I don't I don't know. Like, the gap between AEW and WWE right now, genuinely, in terms of how big the promotions are, is pretty big. But, like, WrestleMania five happening the same year that they can't draw 150,000 buys is, like, a fucking joke. Like, there's no competition at all. On commentary, Jim Ross and Bob Cottle. How do you feel about Bob Cottle replacing Magnum TA? Guys, why did you take Magnum from us? Magnum. I liked, I liked Magnum. Bob Cottle to me just feels like NWA wrestling, though. There's just something yes. so comforting about listening to Bob Cottle. Bob Cottle and Jim Ross together, though, are like. A warm glass of milk on a Sunday evening. Like, it just makes me want to fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Magnum wasn't the most exciting personality either, but I loved the credibility he brought. I can see why they brought in Jesse eventually, because this these shows badly need somebody who's capable of selling something. Yeah. Like, Jim Ross is not interested Jesse in selling Jesse never put a any of that thing. shit over. Yeah, but, like, if you had gotten WWE... <laughs> That's what they were going for. That's what they thought they yeah. might get, but, yeah, he didn't care. Now, I mean, on TV, on Saturdays, they were doing Jim Ross and Michael Hayes. I don't know, Michael Hayes is okay, but got to be he's a little... miserable on commentary, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> Especially with, since he's going to be a big part of the show as a wrestler. I always think it's very interesting that they very badly wanted DDP to be a full-time commentator when they did bring him in. They had no interest really in him as a wrestler. And like, that could have been an interesting thing. Uh, Opening the show, the Oak Ridge boys sing the national anthem. They're a country act from Nashville and they did a 25 minute concert in the middle of this show. That's clipped out on Peacock. Thankfully. Christ, they cropped this out. Unbearable. I, like the, I, we've only had to cover one 25-minute concert ever in the history of the log. I, I don't even think that one was 25 minutes. I'm talking about the the P Diddy medley where he did every oh, single God. song he ever featured on, but he's not the star of any of those songs, so he just plays them and then does his bit. <laughs> I mean, I just 
there have been so many attempts to do concerts with wrestling shows, and I just don't think it usually works. I think it works if it's a – I think it's not something I would broadcast. I think it's fine to promote we're going to have a concert after the show. I could believe right. that might draw some extra people if it's like, oh, we get both a wrestling show and a concert. And, like, if it's somebody they actually want to see, maybe the tickets are cheaper than they would be for a concert. Like, we're the only two people who are on record saying that Eric Bischoff's New Year's idea with Kiss isn't, like, the worst idea ever in the history of the world. Because really all you're doing there is just putting on a wrestling though and then saying, at the end of this, Kiss will perform. I That's think fine. The idea, I think the idea was there was they were going to intersperse the Kiss songs throughout the show. Never mind. That's a horrible idea. Yeah, take it all back. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, to me, wrestling, live music at wrestling just works when it's part of an entrance or like there's a yeah. way to do it where it's like it's introducing, you know, it's a video package and they do the song that goes along with it. That can work. But yeah, I d- I've never really enjoyed concerts at a wrestling show. Music and wrestling draw different audiences. They're just looking for different things. Uh, then Jim Ross announces that Kevin Sullivan and Eddie Gilbert's hair versus hair stipulation has been canceled. Who didn't want to get their heads shaved? And the reasoning they give, which is that the NWA board of directors is like, hey, you guys have to settle your personal issue by yourselves. We don't want our title associated with it. What the fuck are you talking about? That is a very lame excuse. I yeah. yeah I don't know I'm I don't know what happened it's funny they're both on the booking committee so how did this get promoted and then one of them went back on it because that stipulation was the reason why that was the main event of this show and then they don't do it so now the main event has no heat whatsoever and Sullivan's going bald anyway why didn't he just shave it like yeah. he holds on to this shit well into the dungeon of doom a package runs through all the matches tonight, including a JYD versus Muda match that isn't actually going to happen. The idea that they were going to let Muda just job Dude. out JYD in his first match would have been rad. <laughs> I, th- I think they were trying to get JYD to quit. But I mean, that, that's a hell of a first win for Muda. Yeah. A lot better than Doug Gilbert. Yeah, so the opening match is the Great Muda versus Doug Gilbert. Of course, yeah, they promoted JYD versus Muda. JYD is deep in the throes of his drug addiction at this point. He had no-showed like a week's worth of shows leading up to the Clash of the Champions, but then he just showed up for the Clash and they let him work it because it was New Orleans, and you, know, you got to have the dog in New Orleans. Yeah. And they don't want to fire him because then they'll owe him money. So they're just trying to get him. <laughs> yeah. So instead the they, jo- they job him out and they get him to quit. I don't know if he quit because he didn't want to do the job or if he just didn't show up. But they bring him back. The, they bring him back in 90. He comes back the next year. Yep, he sure does. He's one of Sting's dudes with attitude. Let's talk a little bit about Muda here. Um, awesome. The coolest wrestler I've ever seen. Again, let's put something in context. No one watching this company who has watched it at any point throughout its history has ever seen anything even fucking remotely like the Great Muda. How Nothing like the Great had Muda had seen, ever How many existed. people had you ever seen had ever seen had ever done a moonsault before this? 
I mean, they had had like the Chavo Guerreros and stuff yeah. like that, the people who had invented the moonsault. In this match, he does a moonsault and lands on his feet. I'm not yeah. sure that he invented that, but it looks so fucking wild and awesome. It's so cool. It's a terrible idea because it destroyed his knees. Right. But he's doing like this interspersed high flying and karate shit. And it's there's no comparison. Like he's right. inventing something new. Man, when he does the handspring elbow, you just see people's jaws drop. Like, JR and Bob Cottle don't even know how to call the shit. And, like, they're getting visibly excited about it. That's the only thing on this whole show I feel like they get excited about, except for Flair Steamboat. This match is only three minutes long. Muda's a star right now. Yeah. He goes for the moonsault, but he lands on his feet. And then he drop kicks Gilbert out to the floor and hits him with a plancha. And then he hits the moonsault, gets the win in three minutes. Uh, very good squash for Muda. Like when I'm watching the Saturday nights, I fast forward through almost all the matches. I watch the Muda squashes. It's so funny because Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid really changes the wrestling world. But I don't think that people realize that. It also influenced the main event style that would come to dominate the world after that. And Muda's really the first one that takes that and runs. He's the first heavyweight who's like, oh, I could work that style too. And he brings that to heavyweight wrestling. Um, The big question with Muda is like, how would you push him? Here, they push him as a heel managed by Gary Hart. Do you think he's a heel or a baby face? Because I kind of think he's... I think you start him as a heel, but you should have him like decide, like have him being like mistreated by his manager and then turn on the manager and turn face, I think is the way to go. I completely agree. You have a time limit on Muda. He's on excursion. He's not here forever. You know, you have him for like a year and a half or whatever the case is. I would have put the belt on him at the next paper. Oh, bold. He's only in until the end of the year. He finishes up right after Starcade. And they don't know that they're going to be using him again in the future because he gets so over so fast that they try to bring him back whenever possible. Yeah. But I genuinely, when you see how this looks, I would have had him beat Steamboat. I would have, he can drop the belt later. My and then God, come- does him against Steamboat sound awesome? Yes. I would have loved to see that. But how often do you get guys who can just slot into your main event immediately? Like, it never happens. Insanely, isn't Logan Paul a decent comparison? How dare you? I know. <laughs> Compare the great Muda to Logan Paul. The name of the great Muda like that. But, like, yeah, they're just there are never free agents like this who just can come in and be like, yep, he could win the belt tomorrow and everyone would be totally fine with it. It's great. And he's a heel for this run. And then like Gary Hart can turn on him and fire him. And then you can bring him back as a baby face next year. And everyone loves it. It's, it's so easy. Uh, the game for this week in honor of uh, the flare steamboat match, having judges, let's, uh, you know, Render a decision with each match. A pretty clear Muda won this one on points. He got yeah. 90% of the offense. I tried to learn how boxing judges do their judging and like the oh, math pretty, that goes into it's it. It's pretty easy because it's just whoever wins the ma- wins the round wins 10 to 9. If you get a knockdown, you win the round 10 to 8. Or 
a fighter loses a point. Like if they have a low blow or do something dirty, you lose a point on that. Right. But there's actually no rhyme or reason to it since all the judges are corrupt and lying. So like, that was the problem for me is that like, and it's not exactly like UFC either. So I mostly went with like style judging points and like who actually like took most of the attention throughout the course of this. And the great Muda won 10 to zero. Doug Gilbert never showed up. The only match I kept an actual scorecard was for was Flair and Steamboat. For the other ones, and also for the other ones, it's very clear who the winner was. I'd say, with maybe one exception. There's basically four job matches on this show, yeah. so like, yeah. <laughs> Speaking uh, of, Lance Russell interviews Flair. Flair cuts kind of a babyface promo. He puts over Steamboat as the greatest wrestler on the planet, but he says he can't beat Ric Flair again. Although he's already done it twice. Flair keeps staring at something off screen here. This is a really generic Ric Flair promo. Like it's not, there's not really a lot of all, detail all his here. promos during the steamboat program felt very on autopilot. I think he just, just didn't really have an issue. He could sink his teeth into, and they can't have him do anything super heelish. Cause they're going to turn him face here. So it's just sort of a lame duck feud. Like the booking yeah. committee's just kind of you have to finish this up because this is the story going on. But that's one of the things about booking wrestling is you almost never get a blank slate to start with. It's true. Uh, next up, Butch Reed versus Ranger Ross. I don't remember there being any build to this. Doesn't seem like they have much direction for Butch Reed. Kind of feels like they just paired the two black guys here. So they're trying to make a big one. I thought for sure that this show took place in July because they are branding it as like an all American 4th of July. Like let's bring out all the soldiers to March with Ranger Ross. But that that's yeah, it's in May, (laughs) man. Ranger Ross, if he weren't five foot eight, feels like maybe he could have been something, but he's so tiny. And he's so skinny, and he started so late because he did like eight years in the yeah, army before he was he even an actual training. army ranger and paratrooper, like absolute badass. And he's got a little bit of something in this match. He, like he moves pretty well. He's got a little bit of charisma. Uh, it's a very dull match. Teddy Long, who's been fired as a referee for making bad calls against the baby faces comes down to scout butch reed love the idea of the manager having to assemble his stable and like convince guys to sign with him i also agree with that also i'm on ranger ross's uh wikipedia page right now and i would be remiss if i did not mention that in 1996 he was arrested at his home and formally charged with bank robbery as he had been going around the country as the motorcycle bandit oh my god he's like a super villain <laughs> Yes. Wow. Okay. Bring him in as the motorcycle bandit. bandit. That character would get over. This guy who was an army ranger and then was a private investigator and then was the motorcycle bandit. What a life. Man. How many wrestlers have robbed banks? Because, like, obviously Nick Gage did. Like, who else did? Anybody else you can think of? Not off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are some. There's definitely some others. Uh, what was Johnny Canine was involved, or was that his name involved in organized crime? Something like that, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then he made a wrestling comeback in 2004. What the fuck? This guy's Ranger life is Ross. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Reed gets the win after six minutes with a diving clothesline from the top rope. Uh, 
got to render the decision for Reed. He was dominating this match. Oh, my God. Ranger Ross got, like, one point for, like, one drop kick that he did. This went about four minutes more than it really should have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interview with Lex Luger. He doesn't say very much of interest. Steve, again, to all of you at home, for this next match, obviously I don't look at the cards as much as possible beforehand. <laughs> And I want you guys to know that when he tells you what this match is, when I saw what this match was, I let out an audible. We've got the Texas bull rope match. Dick Murdoch versus Bob Orton. Hell yeah. This is the good shit. This is what we need more of. This is Southern wrestling. I can't. What kept me away. Straight out of 1975. Yeah, what kept me away from watching these early WCW shows for so long was my perception that every match was just this. This inherently is the exact match I least want to watch in wrestling history. In WCW's defense, only like half of the matches are this. The other half (laughs) are pretty good. Uh, Or to... Murdoch is 43, Orton is 39, which today doesn't seem that old, but years were longer for wrestlers back then. It's just Murdoch science. has a huge beer gut. He's wearing like a trucker cap and like some overalls. He looks like shit. I mean, of course, he was Dusty. Like Dusty is getting old by this point, and Murdoch was the old guy in their tag team back in the seventies when they were the Texas outlaws. Yeah. That was like hardcore Holly and Cody Rhodes teaming with like the fresh youngster, dusty Rhodes. Uh, They're attached with a rope, but they don't explain what the rules are. I think you just win by pin or submission. Imagine pitching. Let's do a bull rope match, but let's give them less than five minutes. (laughs) Why? Could they have gone any longer? No, but why should they go at all, Steve? This is an attempt to load up this show with what they think stars are. Because Orton's only fucking four years removed from WrestleMania. Yeah, he was. I mean, he he didn't wrestle in the main event, but he was on the floor. He was involved in the match. I don't know. Wrestled Hogan on the first Saturday night's main event. He's gotten big time exposure. I don't know if anyone has fallen out of the public consciousness as fast as Bob Orton Jr. did after that. (laughs) Like, he is a non-factor on this show. JR gets to drop his infamous jerked him off the top rope line. (laughs) Fucking love that. JR out here wilding. He loves it when someone jerks him off the top rope. I do like how Murdoch knows all the tricks with the bull rope. He gets the win when he hog ties Orton and pins him. Uh, I love the idea that he's like, Dusty Rhodes is the bull rope guy, but he learned everything he knew yeah. from Dick Murdoch. <laughs> and Bob Orton's son, Randy, fell victim to a lot of these same tricks when he wrestled Dusty in that bull rope match. That is fascinating that this feud basically continues on <laughs> into that Shield versus the Rhodes boys shit that we just covered. Uh, Gary Hart goes after Murdoch after the match. Orton hits him with the cowbell. And then Orton hangs Murdoch and the crowd doesn't react at all. To a lynching, they don't react. 
I mean, I don't even know the last time that Dick Murdoch appeared on WCW television. Like, I don't know that the fans really know who he is. But even if it's someone you've never seen before, this Brian gets hung to death after a five-minute match. And nobody, everyone's just like, all right, on to the seems next. Like, seems like somebody should care. Bring out the dynamic dudes. <laughs> Uh, who'd you score the winner here? I'd say Murdoch. His uh, knowledge of the bull rope was much more impressive. Oh, yeah. He was full out humiliating Orton until Orton hung him to death. So I guess I'd have to I'd give it on points to Murdoch. Interview with Michael Hayes, who promises he'll beat Lex Luger tonight without any free birds. It is at this point that I realize that they have turned Michael Hayes heel, despite the fact that I spent the entire podcast last time putting over what a good idea it was to push him as a face, as the free bird Michael Hayes on his own for once and for all. Because just imagine this match if Luger's the heel, like perfect Lex Luger, the ultimate badass, the ultimate man against like shitty little Michael Hayes who can't win singles matches, and then Michael Hayes somehow pulls it out. Like, the fans would have loved that. Got to get the Freebirds back. Got to get some heat, like, back in the old days. Got to take everything back to 1982. That was the only year that mattered. (laughs) Next up, we got the Dynamic Dudes against the Samoan SWAT team. (laughs) The Dynamic Dudes. Okay. I didn't think they were that bad here. Yeah, we could shit on the dynamic dudes. It's so easy to do that. This is a pretty hot match, actually. Like, the fans are way into the dynamic dudes. The dudes get a crazy pop when they win here. So, Polly Dangerously is now managing the Samoans after the original Midnight Express lost at Chi-Town Rumble. Um, I assume they were billed into the Samoans against the Midnight Express here, but the Midnights have left the promotion. So I don't know where they get the idea to do the dynamic dudes. It seems weird that Johnny Ace is even in America at all. Yeah. Like it's Doesn't he's really like just use of his time. A year from now, he's going to go to Japan and not come back until 2000. So like it is what it is. But like and Shane Douglas is just like a young up and comer. Like this is like right about the time that he and Mick Foley have like broken into the business at all. So this is a huge spot for him. Yeah, just pair the two blonde guys together. I mean, you know the guy who clearly could have been in this and dodged a bullet is Brian Pillman. Well, that's the thing. If it's Brian Pillman and Shane Douglas, it actually probably works and becomes a thing. I think they put Pillman with the Z-Man instead. The joke here is that Johnny Ace is already like 35 years old. (laughs) He looks it. Already banging hot moms. Yeah. And he looks like an old, old man trying to ride a skateboard down to the ring. Yeah, so they've got a skateboarder slash surfer gimmick. Jim Cornette hilariously blames Jim Ross for this. Jim Ross says it was Hurd's idea. Wait, why does he blame Jim Ross for it? He says it was JR's idea. To have Johnny Ace fucking ride a skateboard? Yeah, so this is wow. got to make him cool, got to appeal to the kids. What's What do the kids do these days? They skateboard. I mean, that, okay, we have evidence that that does work. Like, Darby Allen rides a skateboard to the ring, and it's cool as shit. Because he actually skateboards. And, of course, Jim Cornette hates that. Also, I want to point out that Jim Cornette made Chris Jericho and Lance Storm the thrill seekers in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and they were, like, going to arcades and being totally radical. Yeah, I want to be clear. The dynamic dudes and the thrill seekers are exactly equal lame. There's no like better or worse between those two things. 
man. So the Samoans get control. They work over Ace. Heyman grabs the house mic and complains to Tommy Young that his counts are too slow and he's, quote, as useless as a woman from Nashville. It's so funny because he must have been like, not enough heat on this match, brother. Let me spice it up a little bit here. And he gets booed. Ace manages to tag in Douglas. He comes in hot, but he gets cut off. Hit with a splash from the top, and Ace breaks up the pin. Fatu goes for a slam on Douglas, but Ace comes in with a missile drop kick off the top, and that's enough for the pin for the dudes as they pull off the upset. And like I said, it actually gets a gigantic pop. This was honestly actually a pretty good match. And like, I, I honestly think that they could have worked as a team long term. I don't think that there's anything super wrong. You need to pivot away from the dynamic dude yeah, part of that's, this. That's a bad name. I dropped the skateboard in part. And maybe they're too generic if it's just too, like, young, good-looking dudes. But, like, tr- try it. It's worked before. You could even just call them the dudes and just have yeah. them be, like, kind of laid-back guy, like California surfer guys. But don't – just get rid of the fucking skateboards, and I think you're fine. <laughs> yeah. We go backstage where Lance Russell interviews our judges for tonight. They're Pat O'Connor, Lou Thez, and Terry Funk. Um, Thez says he's focused on who gets the most offense tonight. O'Connor says their decision will be based on who controls the most offense, who had the most near falls and the most escapes. Funk says he thinks the guys will really be trying to go on offense to make sure they're in control of the match and uh, avoid a draw because they won't want it to go to the judges' scorecards. He thinks there won't be a decision from the judges because someone will win the match with a fall. I really liked that perspective. Like, they don't want it to go to us. They don't want to trust us. Like, if it does that, then anything could happen. Same as boxing. You never want to leave it to the scorecards if you can avoid it. Especially in boxing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what? Oh, we think pro wrestling judges are going to be honest? I mean, if anybody's going to be, it's Luthez and, like, these guys. Pat O'Connor. Who's ever looking for a payday more than old-timey wrestlers? It is very funny, though. Like, it's important to go into this remembering that, like, the Terry Funk that we know as, like, the crotchety, insane old man is invented here. Up until this point, he was a venerable former world champion who had gone away to Hollywood and made a bunch of successful movies. Like, I mean, yeah, we hadn't seen him since his WWF run in 85, 86. He's been out of the game a few years at this point. In the WWF, he was a you know crazy bounty hunter heel. So, like, anybody watching the show would see him and think of, like, oh, that's a a retired old-timer my dad used to watch. That's all the context you would have. Yeah, he was the NWA champion back in the 70s, and, you know, you heard he did some stuff with Jerry Lawler in Memphis, but you didn't really see any of it. Mostly you know him because he was in Roadhouse, and he was in Over the Top, and, like, like B-level, like, action movies. Hmm. Next up, oh, the decision on the previous match. I thought the Samoans dominated that match. Oh, my God, yes. Like, the dudes had no fucking chance in hell unless they scored the knockout, and lucky for them, they did. 
next up for the U.S. title, we've got Lex Luger versus Michael Hayes. Um, Hayes comes out first. He's got Hiro Matsuda managing him. He sold out and took Matsuda's dirty Japanese money after he turned on Luger on an episode of Saturday Night because he was jealous of Luger. It's just so weird. The quality of manager has declined so heavily very quickly. You know I what mean, I mean? They have Paulie dangerously. They have Jim Cornette's gone, but he'll be back. But it's just Matsuda is an awful manager. And like Gary Hart was unbelievable in his day, but he's not doing shit with any of these yeah. guys right now. And like Paul Lee is, he should be managing every heel on the whole fucking show. And instead he's like in one match. Meanwhile, Matsuda yeah. and Hart are in 40 matches. Uh, it kind of bothered me that they're both wearing blue here, but at least Luger Luger's in trunks and hazes and long tights. But I still don't like when guys wear the same color. I, I do want to point out, I was enraptured by this match a little bit. They both come out. Hayes is wearing like all this fringe tassel. So cool. Yeah, he's got blue blue long tights and yellow boots. He looks awesome. He comes out to Bad Street. If he was a babyface here, the crowd would be going fucking wild for him because he looks incredible. Then Luger comes out. Luger looks like an alien from another planet. They send out a bunch of like soldiers like ahead of him. And like he's like running alongside them. And he looks like fucking Thor next to these guys. Teddy Long once again shows up to scout. Teddy, neither of these guys are signing with you. No. <laughs> this, is like, this, is, this is like, I don't know, Eastern Michigan showing up to scout a five-star quarterback. It's like, he's he's not going to Eastern. Sorry. The premise of this match is really interesting because Michael Hayes has to work a match where he's obviously at a complete disadvantage, yeah. which is very difficult for a heel. Like... Luger could just stomp on his nuts and Luger's beat him in five so seconds. So much more powerful. And Matsuda's is useless as a manager. So, like, it makes way more sense for this to have been Hayes the babyface and Luger yeah. the heel because Luger has such an obvious advantage. But they still do a pretty good job of being like, Hayes is just so much smarter than Luger that he just keeps eking out advantages. Uh, Hayes... After Luger continually overpowers him, but Hayes finally gets the advantage and he manages to wear Luger down with some holds. He goes for a bulldog, but Luger powers out, makes the comeback. He hits three straight press slams, as the announcer calls 15 minutes gone by. Incredible feat of strength from Luger. Hayes is a thick, thick guy. Yeah, if we're going to the scorecards, like literally this is just takedowns. Like he just keeps picking him up into the sky. At one point, he, like, threatens, like, he's going to throw him out of the ring, and JR's like, please, God, no! Oh, God. Yeah, splatter all over the concrete. Luger goes for the torture rack. Hayes slips out and hits the DDT. What an incredible counter. This is literally, like, Jake the Snake-level quality awesome shit. It's a combo breaker. If this were if Hayes were the babyface, that would have been an utterly satisfying end to this match. Yeah, it's just like Luger whooped his ass, but Hayes caught him with the DDT, and nobody kicks out of the DDT. It's just so good. Um, the ref gets bumped. We didn't even get a pinfall attempt there before the ref bump. Terry Gordy shows up. Terry Bam Bam Gordy. He doesn't work here. 
the disgust in Jim Ross's voice because like this entire match he's been go Jim Ross has been going out his way to be like well uh, Michael Hayes is a heel again but at least he's doing it on his own for the first yeah. time ever and we got to respect that nope. he's like oh son of a bitch it's Terry Gordy the goddamn Freebirds again oh man he Terry Gordy shows up he pushes Hayes on top of Luger and Hayes manages to get the pin. It was not a very well-executed finish. No. Like, Hayes is, like, acting like he's literally unconscious. So, like, he gets shoved down. Luger keeps putting his feet back on the ropes, like, over and over. If it was anyone other than Lex Luger, I would have been like, this is a rib on Terry Gordy. Because he just keeps putting the feet back up on the ropes while Gordy has to shove him off. Um, a surprisingly good match, though, considering how much everybody buries these two in the ring. Like, I thought this was very good, way above my expectations. Like, this is probably the only time in his entire career that Michael Hayes could have been a singles wrestler, because he's actually in pretty decent shape. Yeah, and like this is cool. this is two shows in a row where he gets a match way longer than you would think would be possible for him to work, and he kind of pulls it out. Yeah. This was definitely better than him against the Assassin the previous time. Absolutely. but like Much more credible opponent, thankfully. But you would think that he would be proving something to someone that, hey, actually, maybe he can do this. All right. Scorecards for this one are interesting. I thought this one was close. I give Hayes a lot of points for that counter. Like, that was almost the wrestling equivalent of, like, catching the golden snitch when you counter somebody's finishing move into your finishing move if we ever come up with a comprehensive wrestling point system that's going to be called like the rko rule like if you hit them with one move that's so fucking cool and out of nowhere like you get way extra points yeah this one was close i'd probably have given the decision to luger but it was tight yeah i think luger pretty much had to take it just because like he just kept taking him down over and over and over uh, Russell then interviews Sting, who is about to defend against the Iron Sheik. Yikes. The, the Iron Sheik here feels like if oh. the Godfather showed up to challenge John Cena today. But the man was WWF world champion only like five years ago. Yeah, but again, <laughs> it's, a lo- <laughs> it's a long five years. The other thing about Sheik is he got in the business late, so he's almost 50 here. Yeah. He's uh, not it, in good shape. He's got a giant beer gut. Though amusingly, he will be like signed by Vince to be part of their bullshit Iraq shit like a year later. Yep. Yeah, so George Scott brought in the Sheik because he had been a big star for him in the Carolinas, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, and done business for him in the WWF when Scott was booking the WWF. You know, all wrestling bookers do this. They all bring in their bring in their favorites, bring in guys who have worked for him before, but Sheik did not have anything left. And they know it. Like, this is basically Sheik's first appearance, and Sting beats him in two fucking minutes clean yeah, by with this the point, death lock. Again, yeah. the book committee, the booking is changed. Like, the booking, the people in charge have changed. The committee is trying to get Sheik to quit. 
Um, they job him out and Sheik won't quit, but his job matches are so bad, they send him home. And then they forget to fire him and his contract rolls over and they end up paying him for another year. Yeah, who's fucking smart now? The Sheik, baby. He, <laughs> he's just, getting paid. My favorite thing in wrestling when they're like, uh, well, we're gonna if you won't take a pay cut, we're going to job you out. And then the guy's just like, wrestling is fake, you dumb fuck. Beat me all you want. <laughs> no one's going to give a shit that I did a bunch of jobs in WCW in 1989. <laughs> yeah, nobody's watching this shit. But you know what? There's a lot of guys in wrestling who would be like, oh, I don't want to do the jobs. Oh, I'm going to quit. It's like, no, get paid. Yeah, Bret Hart. (laughs) $150,000 guaranteed contract. I'll show up and you can beat me as many times as you want to. That's that just tells you the people in this business who understand that it is, in fact, a business and aren't fucking weird. $150,000 $150,000 back then. Let's see how much money that is today. It's got to be north of, like, might be four hundred grand today. Sheesh. It's a lot of money to not work very hard, to work two-minute job matches. And then just fucking hit the showers, go get some room service. Like, that's a good life. <laughs> $380,000 today. That's fucking crazy. That is a wild amount of money they were paying him. To be put in the death lock after two minutes and then hit room service? Hell yeah, baby. I'll do that all day. I mean, again, Cornette and the Midnights were getting 225 each, which is close to 700 grand today each. That's crazy. Like yeah. that that should never have been allowed. And yeah, they have, you know, you have some road expenses, you pay a lot of taxes because you're an independent contractor, but that is still a really good living. And the fact that so many of these wrestlers had financial problems, even though they were getting paid like that, just blows my mind. Cocaine's a hell of a drug, Steve. Yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> the problem is they didn't, most of them, I think, didn't think about the fact that these were clearly going to be their top earning years and they yes. lived like they were going to be making this much money forever. And most, yep. of them had no, most of them had no skills that would allow them to make any money after they were done wrestling. No, most of these people were like fucking barely literate back in these days, much less yeah. they didn't have any career prospects. No. All right, so this one lasts two minutes. Sting gets the win with the Stinger Splash and the Scorpion Deathlock. Obviously, you know, Sting, the winner on points here. I don't know. I thought Sheik looked pretty good on points right <laughs> up until the end. Oh, man. The Sheik, the thing with the clubs is still very impressive. Like Fuck the fact yeah, that it is. The fact that, how, much, how much those things supposedly weigh? It's supposed to be like fucking 80 pounds each, and he's just like twirling them behind yeah. his head. <laughs> they did a fun segment where Sting, like Sheik challenged Sting to do the clubs, and Sting's like, oh, could you do it for me? And Sheik does. He's like, Okay, I didn't quite follow that. Could you do it again? He keeps getting him to do it again until Sheik is so tired. <laughs> it was actually pretty funny. Sting is actually pretty fun here. Like, before he get, becomes basically hopeless in the early 90s, it's it's fun to remember when he was a, a young man full of hope. Yeah, I mean, here, I think he's beyond, like, it feels like he's a year like but it feels like he should have been the TV champion last year right after the flare thing. Like feels like they're going really slow with him. It's pretty clear that Scott didn't see a ton in Sting for whatever yeah. reason. Cuz like he, he really wasn't pushing was. him with the shit. 
yeah. New committee seems to be doing better, but still, I just it feels like he should be in the main event. Oh yeah. I mean, if nothing else, like if Flair has any influence on the committee at all, he's saying we got to push Sting. Sting's the guy who's going to finally get me a vacation. Which they get there, but the problem is Flair's going babyface, so that's going to keep Sting out of the main event for a while. Yeah. But he's got got Moodoo to work with, thankfully. What probably should have happened was that Luger heel turn that we talked about, and then maybe heel Luger beats Flair. Yeah. And then Luger Sting can start now, and it could yeah. be like this is the new generation. Yeah, Sting Luger and Sting or Sting Luger for the U.S. title with Luger as the heel. Yeah, but it, I mean it's time just to Luger, like just Luger being like Sting stole my spot. I was supposed to be the chosen one. But instead of choosing between them, which is what they eventually do, like it would have made more sense just to do like we're in a youth movement now. These two are the future. Like they're gonna fight it out to see who's king, kind of thing. And they really just never do that. Mm-mm. Yeah. Uh, Russell interviews Steamboat. He has very little to say, and lots of people are booing him by this point. Jesus, yes, they are. So lame. So lame. But nothing's as lame as his entrance on this show, which is yeah. one of the most eye-rolling babyface things I have ever seen. So it's. Time for the big match, the NWA world title match. Steamboat defends against Flair. Flair comes out first with an absolute army of women. They say 30 and it looks like, or 40 and I believe it. I didn't count. JR and Bob Cottle on commentary just chuckling, being like, uh, he lives uh, quite a lifestyle yeah. there. Uh, people at home, that, that, that really is the lifestyle he leads. <laughs> That's a lot of women for him to be banging in one night, JR. JR, I think Cottle sure literally says like Bob, a, Sure is, Bob, but if anyone is capable of it, it's the <laughs> nature boy, Ric Flair. If anybody has the cardiovascular stamina to be banging 45 <laughs> women in one night, it is the nature boy. That's what it's all about, that, that conditioning. <laughs> sure is, Jim. You got it. And then, yeah, the douche chill inducing entrance you talked about. Steamboat comes out with his wife and son, his son on a white horse. I told you this happened. I just couldn't remember which one it was. You didn't believe me. I I thought that maybe like Steamboat himself came out on the white horse. No, he put this douchebag child on. And I'm sorry that I'm going in so hard on like a six-year-old. Like. They're promoting the kid as the world champion, basically. It's all about this little fucking kid. It's literally that Jim Cornette joke, look who won the pony. He's on a white pony dressed like a cowboy with a little guitar around his neck. What are we doing? There's a reason everybody hated this version of Ricky Steamboat. Holy shit. I don't know if his wife is even there because she's like 20 feet away from Ricky at all times. Doesn't want to be anywhere near him. There's some sort of court order already in effect. I don't. This is bad. Ricky looks like a douchebag. Oh, man. All right. To reiterate, it's one fall to a finish, a 60-minute time limit. If they go to a draw of any kind, the judges will render a decision and decide the match 
the title can change hands on the judge's decision. Love the All setup. Right. Love the drama you get yep. from that. Yep. Because 60 minutes is totally plausible. They went 55 at the clash. I mean, uh, absolutely, it's plausible. Again, the judges are Luthez, Pat O'Connor, and Terry Funk. Um, and I love that AEW's first pay-per-view ever featured Cody paying homage to this when they had judges for his match against Jericho. Oh, yeah. Like they one, of whom was the, one of whom was the great Muda. Oh, shit, you're right. It all comes full circle. Yeah, it was. I think the judges were. Malenko was one of them. Malenko, Arn, and Muda, I think, were the three. Killer judges. <laughs> that was a great set of judges. And it was very random that they had judges because I don't know how credible it was that Jericho and Cody were going to go 60 minutes. I don't even remember like how that came about in storyline. I, I think it went like 40, though. Like it I remember did go the match long. being. It went, I thought it was going to go 60. It went like 40 before that scumbag MJF betrayed Cody. Yep. Oh, man. All right. Lots of booze for Steamboat. Most of the crowd is behind Flair. Oh, my God. Like. There's no cheers for Steamboat. Let's just put it that way. Like, even if some people, like, aren't for Ric Flair either, nobody's for Steamboat. And then we learn something else interesting. The judges will report their scorecards to the announcers every 15 minutes. So we're essentially breaking the match into quarters. And the scorecards, if I understood it right, the scorecards count for each quarter. This is fascinating yeah like this is a genuinely good idea it's well thought out this is the best use of judges ever in wrestling because the idea that like they could reveal as the match is going on like who's ahead on points that yeah. creates genuine tension in the match yeah like if it goes the distance yeah once you get to the last quarter of the match you'd be like well currently on points rick flair's up pretty high steamboat's yeah, got to something gotta out of get a fall or he's gonna lose if they go to the time limit now, they don't do that because obviously they're not going to the time limit, but you could absolutely yeah. introduce that. Yeah, that creates some really interesting drama. I like that wrinkle. Especially in these days where they would announce that over like the loudspeakers, seeing the wrestlers themselves hear who's ahead on points would have been fascinating. All right, let's go. Let's Steamboat go. gets Flair in an arm bar, which is the first submission hold of the match. They trade take, they trade takedowns. Steamboat hits some big chops. Steamboat with a backdrop and Flair rolls to the floor. You know, all all Steamboat early. Coddle says he's keeping his own unofficial scorecard, and clearly Steamboat is ahead here in the early stages of the match. Yep. Um, Steamboat keeps working the arm. He transitions to a hammerlock. Flair gets a drop toe hold to briefly escape, but Steamboat's able to reapply the hammerlock and transition to a half Nelson. You know, impressive offense from Steamboat. You have to, you know, give him a lot of credit for being able to transition through holds like that. That shows great control. Absolutely. Flair gets to his feet. He fires up with some chops, but Steamboat double legs him. Flair knocks Steamboat down with a forearm, but Steamboat 
pops back up. He gets Flair down, puts him back in the arm bar. Flair just cannot get anything going here. It's amazing how dominant Ricky Steamboat yeah. is throughout most of this match. Because, like, they're really going at – it seems like they're trying to protect him in such a way that after this they'll be able to draw with him still. They don't yeah. do that, but that seems like what they're going for. Yeah, he just wipes the floor with Flair in this first 15 minutes. Um, Steamboat knocks Flair down to the floor with a drop kick as the announcer calls 10 minutes gone. Flair gets back in the ring. He hits a hip toss, which is his first takedown of the match. Yep. Steamboat immediately pops up, gets the arm drag, goes back to the arm. Flair just can't string offense together. Um, at this point, we've hit 15 minutes gone, and we get the first scorecard update. Of course, Steamboat is ahead on all three cards. So he's up 3-0. Yep. Uh, Flair throws Steamboat over the top. I don't know why that isn't a disqualification. That was happening at this time, right? Yeah, that rule is in place. Fucking. They would just the forget. The wrestlers, would just, the wrestlers would just forget about it. Which, of course, they would because it's a stupid fucking rule. And Does, fl- it- does Flair get docked points for a dirty move? Now that's interesting. Like, like in boxing, if you hit somebody with a rabbit punch or a kidney punch or a low blow, you lose a point. Yep. Back in the ring, Steamboat hits a chop from the top rope. They do the flare flip spot. Steamboat levels him with a big chop. Feels like we're not going to the judges here because it feels like Steamboat's just going to beat him. The interesting thing about this match, of all the matches that Steamboat has ever had in his entire career, his whole thing is just wear him down, wear him down, wear him down for 45 fucking minutes and then pin him with a roll-up. This match, it seems like he's trying to beat the shit out of Ric Flair in a way that I don't think I've ever seen him wrestle before. This feels like the most dominant we've ever seen him. Yeah, Uh, he's just better than Flair. Like, just across the board. Well, it's just like, did he just... I mean, I think he just... He's learned, you know, in Chicago, he really took it to Flair and he beat him in 20 minutes. In New Orleans, you know, he took his time a little more and he still beat him, but they almost ran out of time. And here he just doesn't want it to go to the scorecards. He just, he does, he knows, even though he's the champion, it feels like Flair is still the incumbent because he's the man. Yeah, Flair will always have home court advantage here. Yeah. Um. Steamboat goes for the crossbody, but Flair drops down and Steamboat tumbles over the top to the floor. Not a disqualification because Flair used Steamboat's momentum against him. Steamboat took himself over the top there. Yes, very important consideration. Flair with a back suplex for a close two count and we hit 20 minutes gone. That's our first near fall of the match. God, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, kind of different here. Like in Chicago, they had something like 25 two counts. They had a lot fewer in this one. <coughs> Flair, co- Steamboat comes in for a cross body, but Flair drops him on the top rope. You know, got to give Flair credit for the big reversal there. I think that's something I give a lot of credit to is, you know, the ability to escape and to reverse the other guy's holds. That shows a lot of skill. Absolutely. Um, they go to the floor. 
and Flair connects with a suplex out on the floor. That's probably the biggest single offensive maneuver we've had so far, that suplex on the concrete. And, and like, that's an unexpectedly brutal thing in a match between these two guys. Like, this is not, that's not a pure wrestling maneuver. Like, that's, that's trying to inflict some pain. At this point, we hit 30 minutes gone. I think Flair may have actually, I think Flair may have actually won that. Steamboat was dominating, but Flair got so much offense in, in that last couple minutes of that period. I think I'd give that one to Flair. Yeah, that means we're even up. And he had the near fall, which they say that Funk and Thez um, say that Flair's in the lead because Flair got the near fall. O'Connor still goes for Steamboat. So they say Steamboat has four cards, scorecards so far to Flair's two. But Flair is closing the gap and he's got control of the match here at the 30 minute mark. We're halfway home. That's also super interesting because that that kind of reflects the way that those three people's wrestling styles were like O'Connor was all about just like dominating on the mat. So like a near fall wouldn't have faced him, whereas the other two were just like, I'm trying to pin your ass right now so I can get out of here. Yeah. Funk, you know, obviously Funk, Funk was more of a technician back in his NWA run, but definitely more of a brawler than the other two guys. Right. Uh, Steamboat gets a near fall off the Oklahoma roll, you know, big turn in the tide for Steamboat there. He had net offense for a while. Yep. Um, they then do the great spot where Steamboat hits the cross body and they both tumble over the top rope. Um, JR says on a double count out, they'll go to the scorecards and Steamboat will get the win. Well, I mean, if the score... Okay, so basically any non-finish is going to the scorecards. Is that yeah, what we've established? Yeah, they don't specify a DQ, but he says a double count out here. They would go to the scorecards. I love the idea that Flair could be like, I'm ahead in points, and then just smash him with a chair and be like, go to the cards, baby! <laughs> yeah, my understanding is in boxing, if somebody, if there is a like disqualification, they do go to the judges' cards. Unless it's something really flagrant. Like, if you just flagrantly nut shot a guy, you lose in boxing. But, you know, in cases where, like, in MMA, like, somebody gets poked in the eye and can't continue, they'll go to the judges' scorecards in that situation. Right. And, of course, in UFC a few years ago, a title did, in fact, change hands on a disqualification. I feel that I feel like you're the person who remembers that most vividly <laughs> because it so squares with the NWA philosophy. Yeah, because it exposes what fake horseshit wrestling is that we have this. Oh, you can just you know kick the referee in the dick and retain your title. You're telling me that in a real sport, an athlete who attacked an official wouldn't be stripped of his title? Yeah. In fact, we're going to get to that later on when we get to the Dan Spivey yeah. and the ref thing, which is one of the funniest fucking ref interactions I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, they get back in the ring. Flair goes to the top. Steamboat throws him off. Steamboat with a backdrop. A um, Flair goes for a back suplex. Steamboat with a great reversal where he lands on his feet and rolls Flair up for a really close two count. Then a huge superplex. What a flurry of offense for Steamboat here. We're getting to the point where Steamboat's going to have so many scorecards. Flair absolutely needs to get a pin or a submission if he's going to win. 
Which is unfortunate because that is not Flair's game at all. Flair does not have knockout moves. He does not have victory moves. No, he's the guy. He'd be the normally he's the guy looking to get to sixty minutes because he's the champion and he'll retain on the draw. But I love that idea of like the only man in the world who can beat him at that game is Steamboat. So he's yeah. starting to get like fuck. I got to figure out something else. Steamboat goes for the double chicken wing, which he got Flair to submit to in New Orleans, but Flair gets a foot on the ropes for the break. I don't I don't know. Do you give credit to the guy who gets a foot on the ropes for a break as an escape? I think you probably don't. Yeah, I don't think so, because that's But you could knock you could dock Steamboat for saying, you know, not a smart move to put a hold on that close to the ropes. That's true. Taking this way too seriously. (laughs) Steamboat with another flying chop. He goes back to the top, but Flair shakes the ropes and Steamboat falls to the floor and hurts his knee. This has got to be Flair's big break. Like, he's got to take advantage of this. Maybe he can, you know, win this round, but it's probably already too late for that. Like, he's got to get a fall at this point, I think. The idea must genuinely cross his mind for potentially the first time in his entire career. Hey, wait, I might be able to win a match with the figure four. (laughs) (laughs) So if you think about it, if Steamboat was up four to two, if Steamboat got all three of the scorecards for this round, he would be up seven to two, and mathematically Flair could not catch him in the final round. If yep. it was six to, th- if it was th- two to one, Steamboat would be up six to three, and Flair could in theory win all three scorecards, and we would have a draw despite the judges. But that's a loss for Flair too. Like Flair needs to beat Steamboat at this point. He's got to pin him or tap him out. And you can kind of see it, all of that running through Flair's head yeah. as he gets into this part where he's just like, I got to pick him apart and I got to do it now. I can't, I'm running out of time. He could come back. He's got better wind even than me. Like, I've got to do it now. Uh, Flair with a vertical suplex. He wrenches Steamboat's knee and puts him in the figure four. At this point, the announcer calls 30 minutes gone, which is weird because we had already gotten the 30-minute round of scorecards. Yeah, that is pretty odd, huh? <laughs> Screwed up the time, man. Um, Steamboat manages to get the ropes for the break. Steamboat comes back with a big kick that puts Flair down. Steamboat goes for a scoop slam, but his knee gives out and Flair rolls him into a small package and gets the one, two, three to end an absolutely incredible match. I, that was about 35 minutes, 37. Let me look up what the time was. I feel like the announcer's call of the time gone by may not have been accurate. I think you're right. Um, Maybe it was only 32, but it felt like closer to 40. It's listed on Wikipedia as no, 31. 37. Yeah. yeah, so I guess that so. was a shoot. Yeah, 31 minutes. So longer than Chicago, which was only 23 minutes, a lot shorter than New Orleans. This is my favorite of the three. I just think that the judges aspect of this gives yeah. it so much more weight. And like... Yeah. This is one of those gimmicks that everyone always talks about being stupid, and I think it works every time they do it. It, it just makes there's just something to this. It just there's so much more to the match because of that. Like I feel like there's so much more to think about because 
yeah, you're thinking about like who's ahead on points. How are they judging this? What are, do different judges look for different things? Like with some judges, some judges are looking for offense. Some are more interested in your defense. Some care about your mat wrestling. Some care about your strikes. Um, yeah, like I like this. There's a role for this. Like, I don't think WWE should do that. Like, maybe you could do this one time for a specific type of gimmick. But, you know, if I were starting a wrestling promotion from scratch, I can believe I would do judges on a consistent basis. Yeah. It's just, if you take it as seriously as they take it here, then it starts to work itself into the psychology of the match in a really genuine way. And then, like, the stuff they do where they're, like, listing off the scorecards during the match, I would even be like, let's do quick interviews in the middle of the yeah. match with, like, Terry Funk. Terry Funk, who do you think's winning on point so far? Well, I think Ricky Steamboat's really been uh, dominating the match so far, but Rick Flair's come storming back. It just adds. It adds to the match. Yeah, Gimmicks like, are supposed to do that. In a boxing match, they don't interview the judges, but they'll always have, like— HBO always has Jim Lampley, you know, Showtime has somebody, I don't know who it is. They yeah. always have somebody doing their own card to say, this is who I think is winning. And increasingly, I think for transparency, they now have the judges report, they'll have the judges report their cards to the announcers during a boxing match now because they've had so many, you know, fucky decisions over the years. And we just had one, you know, a week ago with the Tyson Fury fight. Yeah. But it also creates this thing where, like, imagine if, like, I don't know, like, John Cena versus Randy Orton. Randy Orton's never going to win that fucking match. But if it goes to the judges and John Cena gets fucked, that doesn't hurt Cena, and it's a way for the heel to win. So it makes it more believable that either guy could win this match. And what if the heel paid off one of the judges? This is what I'm saying. It's pro wrestling. What if, you know, the judge has an old school, you know, one of the judges is an old rival of Cena's who still has, you know, a score to settle with them. I just, I feel like, and I feel like AEW might be the perfect promotion for something like this. Yes. Like, I feel like there's such a place they for do, this. They do the long matches. They do the time limit. They've had a bunch of, I mean, a bunch of their most prominent matches have been time limit draws. This was made for Brian Danielson. Oh, Who yeah. goes 60 every motherfucking time. Like, if you told me that this Okada versus Danielson match at Wrestle Kingdom is like, if they go 60, it's going to the judges, and it's like Jushin Liger and Kaiji Muto and, and somebody from America. With an international match, the politics of who gets yes. the judges and, like, the Japanese wrestlers having a different philosophy than the American wrestlers. That's very interesting, isn't it? We're going to nerd out about this idea off the podcast, on the podcast. Like this is like, I'm so passionate about this idea that has suddenly sprung fully formed into my mind. Now that you've got your press conferences, you know, the other thing I've always been fascinated by the British round system in wrestling. The only problem with that has always been like, they've tried it a couple of times. You just have to force feed it to fans until they understand it. Yeah. Like it's just, it's not something you can just show in a one-off as a gimmick match because like people just won't follow it. No, it's just so interesting to me how you can like have each round have its own story. Yeah. yeah. UFC should be the model for, for a lot of wrestling. Now it is way more successful, so successful than pro wrestling. There's things that we can learn from them. Not everything. Not everything needs to be a fucking shoot or whatever, but their presentation 
is so clean and understandable for what is basically an extremely complicated sport. Oh, it's so good. I mean, like, it's not, no, it's not like in the beginning, it was just like these dudes are going to get in the ring and fight. Now there's 10 million rules. Thank exactly. They need to protect their safety, but it's not like, it's not a no holds barred street fight anymore. There's so many rules to it. Yeah. The fact that they're able to present UFC to anybody watching for the first time, never seen a fight and it's followable and it makes sense and it's satisfying that's the lesson wrestling can take from UFC. Yeah. All right. So I tracked things on my scorecard. Yeah, uh, let's hear it. I tracked takedowns, near falls, escapes, slash reversals, submission holds, and strike downs. Um, Steamboat had far more takedowns. He had 14 to Flair's six. Um they both had two near falls. I had Flair with five escapes or reversals and Steamboat with two. So Steamboat or Flair was the craftier of the two. Steamboat had four submission holds. Flair only had one. And Steamboat had seven strike downs and Flair had two. So looking at those numbers, it feels like Steamboat, you know, was the winner in terms of points. Like Steamboat, you know, had the stronger performance, had much more offense and control of the match. Makes sense. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, I think that on my hypothetical scorecard, obviously Flair gets the win because he pinned Steamboat. But if the match had gone to a, my decision right then, I would have said Steamboat was probably the winner. Yeah, let's say it's a 30-minute time limit and it ended at the 30 minutes. I think Steamboat has to be considered the winner of the match. Yeah. The only argument but, you can make is like Flair, you know, I say near falls. The Flair figure four should probably count as a near fall because he was very close to getting Steamboat to tap before Steamboat got to the ropes. However, I do want to say that I would be a corrupt judge because I don't care, and I would never have awarded it to Steamboat after seeing his fucking kid sucks. come out on a pony. Fuck Steamboat. And right, before somehow... We get, oh, go before, ahead. Before we get into the aftermatch thing, oh, no. which is by far the coolest part of all, you have triggered Stump Steve. Oh, no. NWA title changes? So... Are you familiar with the curse of Ronnie Garvin? No. Did something terrible happen to everyone who ever beat Ric Flair for the world title? Not specifically, but let's put it like this. From the moment that Ronnie Garvin wins the NWA World Heavyweight Championship on September 25th, 1987, no one not named Ric Flair successfully defends it more than once until wow. 1999. On TV? I'm just talking about total oh. title defenses in their reign. That Garvin defends it just once. Everyone not named Flair also only defends it once all the way until 1999. Oh, my God. Yes. Until Naoya Ogawa finally gets the second title defense and is the first man to do so. Now, of all of those men who only successfully defended it one time, I'm going to need you to list them, Steve. Okay, so I have to list NWA champions from 1989 to 1999? Yep. Okay. The curse of Ronnie Garvin is now the curse of Steve. Yeah, it sure is. Okay, so <laughs> Flair wins the thing. It's Starcade 87 from Garvin. Yep. 
He holds it until he holds it all throughout 88. So he loses it to Steamboat. Correct. Flair wins it back from him here. Yep, Steamboat with one title defense. Flair holds it until he loses it to Sting in 1990 at the Great American Bash. Correct. Sting defends it once, drops it. (laughs) To Flair. Yep, at a house show. Yeah. Flair is then stripped of it. Yes, technically he loses it to Fujinami. Technically, sort of. That didn't count. Yep. <laughs> um, wait, no, he. Yeah, he didn't lose. The, he lost the WCW title, not the NWA title, because he was thrown over the top rope. Correct. Um, Flair is stripped eventually. Yes. And. Fuck me. What happens to the title after that? So the title that Lex Luger wins is the WCW yeah. title, not the NWA title. Yeah, the NWA title. I will uh, tell you this. The NWA title is put up as the prize. The next one I remember is Chono. Chono is correct. They put it up as the prize in the G1 Climax in 92. Yeah. Uh, who does Chono lose it to? Chono lose it to Rick Rude? No, he does not. He loses uh, it in Japan great, first. Great Muda. There you go. Yeah. Oh, God. Muda drop it to Barry Windham at a WCW show? That is correct. Super Brawl 3. Yeah. Windham loses it to Flair. I just want to reiterate, everyone who is not Ric Flair defends this belt one time and then immediately drops it. This is insane. I never realized this. I, I literally, looking up for trivia for this show, the coincidence that I stumbled upon that I will now call the curse of Ronnie Garvin is unbelievable. Technically, if you want to get... The, it's really, it, does it, Dusty barely ever, like, Dusty barely ever held it. I will tell you this. Uh, it, in order to find somebody who defends it more than twice, you have to go to 2004, and it's Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> oh, God. Jesus Christ. Um, okay. Where were so we? Now, so now Flair has it in July 18th, 93 at Beach Blast. Flair? Okay, isn't this where the NWA withdraws from WCW because Rude beats Flair? Correct. Yeah. I don't remember if that, t- I think it was, it, and I don't even know if that happened before they withdrew. I don't know if they just like got word that the TV tapings had rude coming out with the title, which I'm sure they also weren't thrilled about because that hadn't, the pay-per-view hadn't happened yet. And they were giving away the title change at the TV tapings. Yeah. So they break it off and WCW has nothing to do with NWA anymore. And NWA decides to go it alone. Yeah. And then the next champion is Shane Douglas. Shane Douglas, who defends it zero times, zero times. He he immediately throws it it in the garbage, worthless garbage. Now we enter the complicated. You have four more men who will hold the belt combined from 1994 to 1999. The only one I know is Dan Saburn. Okay. Um, there's are the other are any of the other guys not Japanese? Only Ogawa holding it the first time is okay. Japanese. 
The oh, first God, one you to... should probably get. They do another NWA World Title Tournament oh, in November of '94. Um, this man uh, beats Tracy Smothers in the finals. I was gonna say Tracy Smothers. Is it Candido? It's Candido. Oh, all that time reading these Wikipedia pages pays off. All right, now here's the thing. It goes Candido, Severn, Ogawa, blank, Ogawa. You are so close, but you got to pull a real weird thing out of your ass on this one, buddy. When is this title change, if you can tell me? September 25th, 1999. Bob Sapp. That would have been awesome, but no. No! Who is it? Gary Steele. I don't even know who that is. He's in like an MMA fighter who was from Japan okay. who came over to America. I mean, America. I knew it was going to be something Inokiest. Yeah, it was literally the only way Ogawa would drop it is to a guy he think could, thought could beat him in a real fight. Should have put him in the ring with Bob Sapp. Yeah. Uh, and then in order to find somebody who defends it more than twice, you got to go to Jarrett No. 4 who defends yeah, it like three times. Shamrock wins it at the first TNA show and then gives it up, never defends it. Nobody defends this belt more than three times until, other than Jeff Jarrett, until, Sting. hold on, hold on, uh, Adam Pierce, 2011. Who tracks NWA title defenses is my other question. Dude, this is up to date to now. We're up to EC3 who finally beat Tyrus and ended that reign of bullshit. Oh, Tyrus, By the way, how long had Tyrus been the champion? Cyrus was a champion for 288 days. Guess how many title defenses? One. One, <laughs> One fucking title defense. <sighs> All right. You stumped, Steve. Congratulations. Yeah. I don't owe you $10. Woo. All right. Somehow, I think the best part of this is actually what happened after the match. This is maybe the best aftermatch thing in the history of professional wrestling. They set off. A paltry number of fireworks. They tried. (laughs) JR gets in the ring to interview Flair, who's now a six-time world champion. Flair cuts a babyface promo. He puts Steamboat over as the greatest champion he's ever faced. Terry Funk jumps in the ring, and he congratulates Flair and he's just kind of awkward. It's like your drunk uncle, like, grabbing the mic at a wedding or something. It's kind of like, hey, JR, he's trying to be like, hey, shut up, Terry. We're good. Uh, okay, enough. Thank you, Terry. He says that if it had gone to the time limit, he would have voted for Flair because Flair is the greatest champion of all time. And then he challenges Flair to defend the title against him because it would be such a great match. And Funk wants that one more match. The spectacular thing about this moment is the way you can literally see it cascading across Terry Funk's head brain that like, I've been treated like a champion all day. I hadn't even thought yeah. about wrestling. I just watched this incredible this so match. Great. I want to be part of this. I want one more shot. I'm going to go in there and tell Flair he's the fucking greatest. He's the man. I'm so impressed by what I just saw. And then I'm going to ask him for a championship match and we're going to tear it down together, brother. It's going to be great. And just like you can watch the emotions flit across his face as Flair is about to shoot him the fuck down. Flair shoots him down in such brutal fashion. For five years, you've been out partying with Sly Stallone. You're not in the 
he keeps making reference to the fact that we have a top 10 here. No, they the do. They no, do. The <laughs> they start doing it right after this. They hadn't been doing it in the weeks lead up, leading up to this, but they started announcing next week. Do you need me to rattle off the top 10? I bet they do it. I think they do it on the show at the great American bash, but yeah, they do start doing the rankings. Another thing AEW should bring back. That is pretty cool, actually. But yeah, he just keeps telling Funk, like, you're not in the top 10. I'm not going to pay attention to you. Like, yeah. I, as the champion, I'm responsible for wrestling the top 10, not you. Yeah. Says, so, you know, of course, Funk's been out in Hollywood making movies. He's not been wrestling. So he's not a ranked contender. There's a lot of guys who have <clears throat> earned their title shots before Funk does. And you just see the heartbreak in Funk. Like, it just, he's so embarrassed. Like, he got in the ring and he put himself out there. And Flair is just laughing at him. And, like, most people would be like, fuck, what a horrible moment in my career. Slink off into the background. But Funk keeps trying. He keeps being like, I think you're great, Flair. I I don't mean any offense. I just think that we could have a great match together. And Flair just keeps burying him. Like, Flair keeps... You are old and fat and out of shape. He doesn't say that. But it's just like, Terry, you're retired. You're making movies, you know. Leave me alone. And Terry takes a few steps back. JR goes back to the interview, and then Terry just fucking punches him right in the side of the head. Oh, he thought he was better than Terry Funk, and that's a dangerous thing to be. But you can just see Terry Funk... Terry Funk is so amazing at this. You can see every emotion he's feeling on his face as it just starts to bubble up and bubble up. And suddenly that crazy motherfucker, Terry Funk is back. Funk beats the hell out of flair, drags him outside, gets him up on a table at ringside and pile drives him on the table and the table they don't go through it, and it's somehow more brutal that he just hits him and the table falls over. And then yeah, he just, Rick like, Flair. throws the table on top of Flair and hits him with a chair while he's under the table. Ric Flair slides off of this thing oh. like his neck is broken, and he's a like just a bag of shit. <laughs> I mean, just for this era, that is so brutal. He might as well have blown his head off with a shotgun. This didn't exist. There were bloody brawls within the context of a match, but like doing stuff with tables and shit. The only table spot I can ever remember before this, I think Randy Savage pile drove somebody through a table and, but that was in like the outlaw Memphis territory. Right. That was in the IWA. 10 people watched that. I only know about it because Jim Cornette's talked about it. Like for Terry Funk to do that here, after Ric Flair has basically just turned face during the course of this match. Yeah. Like, this is a powerful face turn for Flair. And, like, suddenly Terry Funk comes out of nowhere and he invents hardcore old man crazy yeah. Terry Funk in this moment. And that's who he'll be for the next 30 years. And what just what, exactly what they need. They need a hot angle. They need a hot new heel to oppose Flair and get Flair's sympathy as a babyface. This is exactly what this territory needs. This is the time you pull out the big angle. And, like, what a great one, too. And, like, yeah. it is a crime that the show does not end here with, like, oh, Terry God. Funk standing over a dead Ric Flair. We have, like, an hour it, left. But, like, it, it's just such a moment where you'd, like, call your friends and be like, yo, Terry Funk killed Ric Flair. Yeah. So now we get to the downside. 
realistically, they didn't know, you know, if it's a real match, you don't know how long it's going to go. So you got to have overrun matches. So if the main event ends with time left, you put the other matches out there. So we have two more matches after this. this okay, but it's not this. a shoot, guys. Come on. Yeah, it's an acceptable break from reality to just have the wrestling show end on time. We basically get like 20 minutes of Kevin Sullivan to end this show. Yeah. And no one wants that. <laughs> we did not need back-to-back varsity club matches. Fuck. First up, well, first, Joe Pettacino interviews Nikita Koloff making his that's, return. That's interesting. That doesn't last long, does it? No. No, he feels like in this whole era, he's always making returns. Yeah. He's going to officiate the Road Warriors versus Varsity Club match. <laughs> Who All else right. can keep these animals in line? They really should have found more for Nikita to do. Because, like, he's, like, genuinely somebody that the fans care about. And it just Still seems in like they shape. Could... Yeah. Yeah. There's only a couple. I mean, we're a couple years removed from his big run. That was, you know, 85, 86. But still. Yeah, he's but he's somebody who was a star Probable. when these fans were still watching, you know, and so like I, I love the idea of like Commissioner Nikita. <laughs> oh God, nobody fuck with him. <laughs> yeah, NWA tag titles, Varsity Club defend against the Road Warriors. The Varsity Club upset the Road Warriors at the Clash in New Orleans because of Teddy Long's bad officiating. He didn't count a three because he was claiming his back was hurt. And then Dr. Death got Hawk in a cradle and pinned him. But so that re- better believe Dr. Death was holding him down for real, not letting him kick out of that. So that resulted in what? Teddy Long getting fired as a ref yes. and now becoming a manager? Yep. Sure. Um, it's Steve Williams and Mike Rotunda wrestling here for the varsity club. Sullivan's on the floor, but not for long. Cause Nikita throws his ass out almost immediately. Hell yeah. Thank you, Nikita. Um, pretty good fast paced match here. Actually, the warriors don't sell very much. This only lasts about six minutes. Um, looks like the warriors have it won. But Dan Spivey and Sullivan attack Cole off. And of course, that's a disqualification. And it costs Hawk and Animal the tag titles. It's this match, right? Where, like, Spivey's supposed to do a ref bump on the ref, and it's Koloff here. And instead, they just, like, Koloff just winds up beating his ass. Yeah. Nikita doesn't sell. Yeah, there was like he was literally just supposed to be like knock him down and then it'll be a ref bump DQ. But Nikita just turns around and starts peppering him with right hands to the face. Um, Road Warriors, of course, dominated the match and you know would be out on the scorecards. Oh God, the Road Warriors have never lost a match no. on the scorecards. All right, in our main event, we've got the first family, Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner, defending the U.S. tag titles against the varsity club of Kevin Sullivan and Dan Spivey. The U.S. tag titles are the main event of a yeah. mat, of a show with Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. How about that? So Gilbert and Steiner are the first family. Basically, the joke is Gilbert and Missy Hyatt are the parents to Rick, who was their idiot son. It's actually kind of a fun gimmick. Like as much as I hate like these Eugene style characters, like 
Rick Steiner isn't portrayed as being like slow or like remedial in just any way. Kind of he's dumb. just an idiot. Yeah, he's just a dumb jock who doesn't know what he's doing. I just think Missy Hyatt is a heel act. Of course she is. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't think that's real bold, but I, to me, there's heat in Missy Hyatt being with a guy. Yeah, she should have been managing the varsity club. God, everybody would have hated them. Um, I think her. I think Gilbert. Her. I think Gilbert is going to turn heel on Steiner not long after this, which is the right move. Eddie Gilbert's a heel act. I just love the idea. Again, not to keep bringing this up. Somehow Eddie Gilbert and Kevin Sullivan, who are the loudest voices on the booking committee, have worked their way into yes. the main event of this pay-per-view. Weird. How, amazing how that always happens. And they worked their way into it by saying they were going to do a hair versus hair match and then not doing it the day of the show and still getting the main event payday. Uh, Sullivan. And so, so Steiner has a legitimate arm injury. So immediately in the match, they slam Steiner's arm in the ring post and he doesn't have to work the match. This only lasts a few minutes. Let me see. This was also six minutes. Both of these last two tag matches went six minutes. Yep. The varsity club beat up Gilbert for a while. Steiner eventually manages to tag in, but the ref didn't see it. Sullivan goes to pile drive Gilbert and or Spivey goes to pile drive or powerbomb Gilbert and Steiner hits him with a big clothesline as the referee is putting him out of the putting Sullivan out of the ring. And that's it. That's the one, two, three Steiner and Gilbert retain Steiner line. Yeah, that's a stiff ass clothesline he hit him with. I mean, this is fine. There's nothing about it that I wouldn't have liked just fine if it was the opener. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably right. Also, they pan up to the crowd after the show because they do that thing where Jim Ross and Bob Cottle are standing in front of the crowd in order to, like, send it, like, to the end of the show. And everyone's gone. (laughs) Everyone is leaving in droves. No, I, I mean, I can't imagine sticking around after Flair and Flair and Steamboat, maybe for the Road Warriors. But yeah, once that was over, hitting the road, beating the traffic. Everybody hold on. Don't you want to watch Kevin Sullivan wrestle? No, <laughs> I don't think anyone has ever wanted to watch Kevin Sullivan wrestle. Perverts in Florida in the 80s. <laughs> All you sick perverts out there. <laughs> Uh, JR then announces that Williams and Rotunda have been stripped of the tag titles due to attacking the officials. This is a really big development, very casually tacked on to the end of the show here. Again, everyone's gone. Most people probably turn the pay-per-view off. And then here's JR just being like, hey, guys, just so you know, uh, we stripped him of the fucking belts because they hit Nikita and then Nikita beat the shit out of him <laughs> anyway. Their asses. They both got <laughs> beat up and got stripped of their titles. I don't really know. Well, I mean, maybe we'll figure it out next on the next show, but I don't really know why they held these belts up here. Yep. Um, Steve Williams is still around after this. I was maybe I was thinking maybe he had a Japan tour to go on, but no, since Terry Gordy just came in. Obviously, they're not busy over in Japan right now. Nope. Uh, mostly that's because New Japan is super hot. Yeah, all, not Japan all Japan doesn't really hit their stride until the next year. Yeah. That's when they start signing up 
everybody, Williams and Gordy and Ace, everybody just jumped ship from this crap hole over to all Japan. <sighs> so that is the end of the show. I mean, pretty much a one match show, although Hayes and Luger had a good match too. But yeah, I mean, this was all Flair Steamboat. This probably could have been cut down to two hours. I mean, the broadcast. The Peacock version was two and a half hours and had the 25-minute Oak Boys concert cut out. Yeah, thank fucking God. Yeah, we didn't miss much there. Overall, you didn't like this one as much as Chi-Town Rumble? I thought it was more interesting because of all like the various booking and politics pushes and pulls. And I liked the Flair Steamboat match better, but I just liked the overall show better before. Maybe that's just because Scott was just, like, telling the wrestlers, like, go figure it out for yourselves. Take as much time as you want. I don't give a shit. But, like, there's just something about this show that doesn't – maybe it's just that I'm so insulted by the way the main event was put together. But, like, there's just something about this show that doesn't feel like a complete show. It's a a lame duck show is the thing. Yeah. Like, we got a new booking committee, and they're just getting their ducks in the row. And it's just tough with wrestling. This is now – four booking regimes this company's had since December. It's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of turnover. And you just, a wrestling company, you don't just turn it on a dime. Like, it's a tanker. It takes time. And really, this committee, they really only started booking after the clash. So they've only had a couple weeks. And I I feel like they just spend the next couple months kind of getting the pieces in the right spots on the chessboard. They have a lot of people who they feel like are in the wrong face or heel roles and they need to turn and change the presentation of, of. This is a fun conversation for another time, but like the fastest anybody's ever turned a company around from like dog shit to like actually working. It's probably Triple two H. years. Yeah. But it takes multiple years. It's like, being a head coach of a crappy football team, you can decide a year in like, oh, this guy's never going to get there and cut him short. Yeah. But no one's going to succeed at that in under two years. It's just not possible. It takes time to like reteach the fans about the new direction we're going. Triple H got the WWE hot really fast. But but even if you think about it, like he if he started like right at the end of the pandemic, that's still like a year and a half. And that's like the quickest I can imagine. Yeah. It does take some time. All right. That's a wrap for Russell war 89. Next time going to cover one of the legendary shows in pro wrestling history, the incredible 1989 great American bash Um, loaded card at this one. We got flair versus funk. We got sting versus Muda steamboat versus flair. We got a war games match. We got a two ring battle Royal. A lot of stuff here. This is the one and only early WCW match I ever covered for Q's reviews because it's just such a fucking fascinating and classic show. Um, I probably covered it 10 years ago, so I don't fucking remember what I thought about it. So I'm looking forward to seeing it it again. We did did an episode on it in the early days of our podcast. That was like four years ago. I don't remember that shit either. It was a while ago. It was but if you put six years, it was over six years ago now. We've been doing this podcast for that long. Yeah. Jesus Christ, Steve. <laughs> We're turning the corner towards seven years. Fuck me.
But if you put Sting and Great Muda in a, a ring together, yeah. I will be there, baby. I don't care where it is. <sighs> so, yeah. All that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.